Good job you're doing. Boy, what a good reputation. Thank you very much, Gary. Go to www.facesofmars.com. That's www.facesofmars.com. According to a new report in the New York Times, the U.S. government may have physical evidence of, and we're quoting, off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. Surely the days of the great Martian revelation are upon us. We're getting signals from MRO. UHF is good. Touchdown confirmed. Perseverance, safely on the surface of Mars, ready to begin seeking the sands of past life. At this point, the descent stage has flown away to a safe distance. Perseverance is continuing to transmit direct through Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter to Earth. me tonight hate me tomorrow i'm gonna let you down that's how it goes around i'm never 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 gonna change so stop asking why i'm acting awful strange how fitting for this bizarre night upon which we all meet and how fitting for this landing of the perseverance forever rover those words cannot ring more true well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and all you ETs out there in the bite waves of the Internet, and wherever you're at down through time monitoring this show. I'm Gary Legere, the Mars Revealer, known also as the Mad Martian, and I would like to welcome you all to the Martian Revelation that is upon you all again now. Welcome to the Bazaar. And today is February 20th of 2021, or the 21st, depending upon your time zone as it says through time. And you're listening to this broadcast through Global Enlightenment Radio Network Stream, and also through the Public Streaming Network Stream, as well as through the Martian Revelation Show YouTube Stream, live at www.thefacesofmars.com. That's right, which everyone knows your defense for the war which we all fight against those evil dark missionaries. We're all leading you away from the light and the truth and manipulating you all instead to help you open your wallets and your pocketbooks, you know, to join their dark side of special clubs and special subscriptions that only allows them more power to continue to mislead you all and to steer you all away from the truth that they themselves not wish to face or even admit to. Hell, let alone even talk about. Yeah, UFO Diaries. Faces on Mars. Cover-up controversy. Down through time. Huge conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. Okay. <laughs> That's right, but the Martian Revelation is, however, 100% listener-supported, with no special clubs or any special subscriptions to join. So if you're a listener, please help support the Martian Revelation Show again, which is your only defense for that war which we all fight against evil dark missionaries. <laughs> and we're working with the goal to bring you the bizarre truth one show at a time. 
So please share the facesofmars.com link. And I must also ask you all that you please donate to the show with anything that you could afford by clicking on the big red, white, and blue American donate button at the top of the show page to allow it to continue being here for you down through time. As it is because of you, the listener, of which makes the Martian Revelation possible to be brought to you all back through time. So your listenership and your donation support actually counts, and it helps us all to not only fight, but to win against those evil dark missionaries, <laughs> as well as a secure future, which we can all literally make the Martian Revelation our reality. By what, you say? By making our fate. Just remember also that if you're listening to this Martian Revelation show, then know this, that you are the resistance down through time. So we got an interesting show for you all tonight, and very informally informational as usual. As we got return guests with us, Stephen Bassett tonight of Paradigm Research Group. And after Stephen, we're going to have Professor Pekka Jan Hoonan, hopefully I'm saying that name right, <laughs> on with us. So this show's definitely going to be multidimensional in its subjects. So everyone's feeling glee and very happy. Oh, ye, as we have touchdown NASA's Perseverance Forever rover ready to search for life on Mars. Again, I like the opening song there. It's only going to let us down. That's how it goes around. From an article released yesterday after seven months in space, NASA's Perseverance Forever rover overcame a tense landing phase with a series of perfectly executed maneuvers to gently float down to the Martian soil Thursday and embark on its mission to search for signs of past life. See, there it is again for signs. It's already letting us down, and the wording tells it all. Hey, at least they're letting you know they're going to let you down. But touchdown confirmed, said operations lead Swati Mohan at 3 Time as mission control at NASA's JPL in California erupted in cheers. The autonomously guided procedure was in fact completed more than 11 minutes earlier, the length of time it took for radio signals to return to Earth. I got ideas about that. I mean, why not have a little uh, CubeSats, sub-satellites between Earth and Mars at certain intervals, so then, you know, with high bandwidth, so then it could shoot that shit right back to the Earth much faster. I don't know. I'm crazy. But I don't know. To me, that would uh, work a little better. But you got to have some AI on some of these things, obviously, for the time duration. So that would be there like 11 minutes of hell <laughs> rather than seven. But shortly after landing, the rover sent like back its first black and white images, revealing a rocky field at the landing site in Jezero Crater, just north of the Red Planet's equator. I know people are saying that the real way to pronounce that is Jezero, but, you know, I like Jezero better. But more images, video of the descent, and perhaps the first sounds of Mars ever recorded by microphones are expected in the coming hours as the rover relays data to overhead satellites. Now, that's something I'm keeping on the eye out for. I would have liked to have had to provide for the show. And get this. U.S. illegitimate President Joe Biden hailed the historic event. Today proved once again... With the power of science and American ingenuity, nothing is beyond the realm of possibility, he tweeted. Really? 
bold words coming from a man that don't give a shit about our progress or our place in this race into space. You're not bullshitting me and you're not bullshitting those who are awake and who are waking up. We're going to make our fate and you, sir, are not part of it. My right to say that. Free speech on this show. But Perseverance Forever's prime mission will last just over two years, but it is likely to remain operational well beyond that, with his predecessor, Curiosity, still functioning eight years after landing on the planet, said NASA Acting Administrator Steve Jerzyk. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry to laugh, man, but with a name like that, it's kind of implicating Steve Jerzyk. Steve Jerzyk. <laughs> sorry. It'll be on Mars for its entire life, he said, adding that these robots tend to be really reliable. But over the coming years, Perseverance forever will attempt to collect 30 rocket soil samples and sealed tubes to be eventually sent back to Earth sometime in the 2030s for lab analysis. Again, the opening song is right. Love me tonight, hate me tomorrow. But the problem there, you can also see it takes forever for anything to happen to be able to get those caches back to Earth. Long after the point, in my opinion, when humans will already be on Mars. That's where it needs to go. Not on their timetable. But that's my opinion. And I know many of the listeners out there share that opinion. But about the size of an SUV, the craft weighs a ton. It's equipped with a 7-foot-long robotic arm, has 19 cameras, two microphones, and a suite of cutting-edge instruments to assist in its scientific goals. Let me interject here. You know what would be interesting? I would like them to jam some tunes. The Rover, Vagabond, Nomad, call them what you will. I would love to hear Metallica's song, Wherever I May Roam. And I would like to hear how it sounds on Mars, in its atmosphere, in its air, in its differences between Earth. I want to see how it would sound coming out of it. Wouldn't you? I think that's a good experiment. You know, a second best from bringing a glass of water, lowering it on a boom, taking the cap off, have microscopes and everything all on top of it to see how quickly it evaporates and what happens as it does. I want to put some things to the test with some basic stupid, but I think incredible experiments that should be answered while we are not there to be able to do those simplistics of science either way. But I still believe a glass of water could also be used to test for other things like life, which, again, listeners to this show cannot appreciate, is the fact that its objective is not to discover life. But yet... Only the signs. They're the signs of life. Turtleneck sale pay speed policy agenda. But it is incredible. These robots tend to be really reliable. So we have to wait till Perseverance Forever collects these 30 caches, chucks them on the surface in sealed tubes to be eventually sent back to Earth sometime in the 2030s. But before it could set out on its lofty quest, it first had to overcome the dreaded seven minutes of terror. The risky entry, descent, and landing phase that has scuppered nearly half of all missions to Mars. The spacecraft carrying Perseverance forever careened into the Martian atmosphere at 12,500 miles an hour. Protected by its heat shield, then deployed a supersonic parachute the size of a Little League field before firing up an eight-engine jetpack. 
Finally, it lowered the rover carefully to the ground on a set of cables. Alan Chen, lead engineer for the landing stage, said a new guidance system called Terrain Relative Navigation, which uses a special camera to identify surface features and compare them to an onboard map, was key to landing in a rugged region of scientific interest. Good. Then maybe the next one you could send to Cydonia or some other places I could name. Right? The land of the nasties. Like in Viking, couldn't land there, had to land ultimately at Christ of Phoenicia. But anyway, we are in a nice flat spot. The vehicle is only tilted by about 1.2 degrees, he said. We did successfully find that parking lot and have a safe rover on the ground. Scientists believe that around 3.5 billion years ago, the crater was home to a river that flowed into a deep lake depositing sediment in the fan-shaped delta. Perseverance forever ended up landing about a mile southeast of the delta, NASA scientist Ken Farley said, in a geologically significant area. Mars was warmer and wetter in its distant past, and while previous exploration has determined the planet was habitable, Perseverance Forever is tasked with determining whether it was actually inhabited. Is it? But I thought you were only looking for signs. Who are you bullshitting? You see, you can't have it one way and then go another. Now you're saying it's tasked with determining whether it was actually inhabited. That means you could test for actual life. But you don't have none of the correct experiments on it, especially according to Dr. Gil Levin. Listeners to this show can appreciate, which I have to bring up. I just updated uh, his archive page, but it sh it, I was just to let everyone know I'm well aware that for the past week or two, the archives have not been being able to be accessed because of the Flash player is deceased, not doing anything anymore for embedded files on websites. So... Forgive me for that. I'm uh, working on that. Hopefully that should be taken care of in a day or two or definitely this week. But I don't foresee that long of a problem. I just got to go through the whole site and uh, make these changes, though. So it's a little bit of work. It is what it is. Again, we bring this to you free. With free speech is the rule of the day and how we will make our fate. This is our freedom of which we're going to lead this nation to not only make America great and to save America, but to keep America great and to be the infrastructure upon which the rest of the world shall follow. Yet Biden calls in the nerve of that son of a bitch. So again, remember the test with really looking for signs of possible past life. Okay? It is not tasked with determining whether it was actually inhabited. Because that you would have to test for extant life as well as possible past life. Plus landed places where it has other signs and other things to look at to determine whether that planet was ever or is inhabited. Cydonia next. But it will begin drilling its first samples in the summer. And along the way, it will deploy new instruments to scan for organic matter, map chemical composition, and zap rocks with a laser to study the vapor. Yes, but nothing to actually determine if life is actually existing in any of those possible signs you're looking for. A labeled release experiment, upgraded, updated, with the recommendations of Dr. Gillivan you did not want to use or utilize. Or even, like I always say, put a percolate tester right next to it. I want to see that theory put to the test and put to bed. 
and see which experiments, Dr. Gills or the percolate tester wins over. Because in that discussion of life on Mars being discovered in 1976 at 4,000 miles apart at two landing sites, dual tests replicating scientific tests from both sites detecting life. They don't want to replicate that or give Dr. Gill the respect he deserves. He's 96 years old now. He's still sharp as a tack, and the technology, there is no better technology to actually detect life as it's still used today all over the earth. Again, who you bullshitting? Love me tonight, hate me tomorrow. I'm going to let you down. Hey, that's how things go round. <laughs> but that's the truth over it all, and when it comes down to it between what mainstream science wants to claim as fact and what you have others that conflict that, data from also mainstream science no one really wants to touch it so they're taking forever to give us the truth to, to determining whether it was actually inhabited so again in the wording itself that person had uh, miswritten because it's not tasked with determining whether it was actually inhabited unless the camera happens to see something which we as humans can also see in the data that they'll actually let us see that would be so obvious, and there are spots where that could be seen, geologically and archaeologically, but they won't go there either. They steer far away from that as solving the question of Dr. Gil Levin's controlled labor release experiments from 1976. So as it's vaporizing and taking all these spectral analysis and all these different tests, looking for possible signs instead of actually doing those great things and then having something to actually test for life and the percolate tester next to it. But I'm crazy. My word don't count, even though it's our monies that pay for it, along with some international collaborators. Listeners to this show can appreciate how I feel about that. But instead of answering the questions, I'm only going to let you down. But despite the rover's state-of-the-art technology... Bringing samples back to Earth remains crucial because of anticipated ambiguities in the specimens it documents. Well, if you ever watch The Outer Limits, The Sand Kings, you know, you will see a, a very big reason why that should not just be. I mean, that gives a good metaphoric examples of why that should not just be. But anyway, I'm ranting. But for example, fossils that arose from ancient microbes may look suspiciously similar to patterns caused by precipitation. Before getting to the main mission, NASA wants to run several eye-catching experiments. Tucked under Perseverance Forever's belly is a small helicopter drone that we all know is named Ingenuity that will attempt the first powered flight on another planet in a few weeks' time. That's great. You see, that's like bringing a glass of water, lowering it on the boom type of experiment, just to see what the hell it will do. Now we are going to utilize that to flight as well, and then the, the missions will be amazing if people have the balls to really get behind it and make it what it needs to be, not what it has been and what's going on now with a turtle next sale pay speed policy agenda that only threatens us by our existential threat of enemies on this planet who are trying to secure space in that high ground for themselves. Again, free speech on this show. Again, named ingenuity, it will have to achieve lift in an atmosphere that's 1% the density of Earth, a demonstration of concept that could revolutionize the way humans explore the planets. Another experiment involves an instrument that convert oxygen from Mars's primarily carbon dioxide atmosphere 
much like a plant. But don't forget, Martin Zappi also has some oxygen too. That's been told. But the idea is that humans eventually won't need to carry their own oxygen on hypothetical future trips, which is crucial for rocket fuel as well as for breathing. The rover is only the fifth ever to set its wheels down on Mars. The feat was first accomplished in 1997, and all of them have been American. Well, that's a trend that this illegitimate President Biden wants that trend to change. And so do others. But the U.S. is also preparing for an eventual human mission to the planet, though planning remains very preliminary. Yes, but there are those with balls who are working on that and on a much faster timetable than the turtleneck sale pay speed policy of quote-unquote NASA or national pride. Many great things could happen if we the people just really back and get behind the right people with the right vision for America and America first. But maybe by mid to end of the 2030s, we could start pushing out of the Earth-Moon system and land astronauts on Mars, said Jerksik. Yeah, and perhaps probably earlier. Again, we're in a race. And you're pushing it out to us like there's, it's an illusion or it's an unreality. It's a nothing-to-see-here type of subject to mention that fact that we are in a race with existential threats of enemies who are wanting to prevent us from ever being able to go, but themselves securing it all. I mean, let's look at it realistically. But now in other news, from four days ago, behold, see the first Mars close-up from United Arab Emirates Hope Orbiter. Just one day after arriving in orbit around Mars, the United Arab Emirates' first interplanetary spacecraft called Hope captured a stunning photograph of the red planet. The new photo, which is the first since Hope's arrival in Mars's orbit on February 9th, shows a smattering of clouds, four massive Martian mountains, and the vast Valles Marineris, the largest canyon in the solar system that shows in the right side of the image. We couldn't have asked for a better day on Mars, UAE Space Agency Chairperson Sarah Alamiri wrote in a tweet on Sunday, February 14th. Can't wait to see the science data come in so we can comprehensively characterize the lower atmosphere. The Hope spacecraft launched in July of 2020, bound to study the weather and atmosphere of the red planet. Hope successfully executed a perilous 27-minute thruster burn on February 9th to slip it into orbit around Mars, making the UAE the fifth entity to visit the red planet. China became the sixth the next day with his Tingwen-1 mission that I wish and would hope would blow up. But on board are three different instruments, one of which is a camera dubbed the Emirates Exploration Imager, or EXE. It's EXE that snapped the new photograph on February 10th at 3.36 p.m. At that time, the spacecraft was about 15,300 miles above the planet's surface. Easiest to spot in the new image are the trio of mountains marching across the image from top to bottom, Ascreus Mons, Pavanus Mons, and Arcea Mons. Tricker to pick out its massive Olympus Mons, the largest mountain in the solar system. Boy, now they're saying it's a mountain. I thought it was a volcano seen at sunrise right along the line where night and day meet. To the right of the line of peaks is the vast canyon system, again, Valles Marineris. Throughout the image is precisely what Hope went to Mars to study, the red planet's atmosphere. XE and the other two instruments, which measure infrared and ultraviolet light, 
will gather the data scientists need to understand the planet's weather around the globe and throughout the day and to piece together how the layers of the atmosphere interact with each other. Look at all the clouds, Andrew Jones, instrument scientist for XE at the University of Colorado Boulder's Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics, which partnered with the UAE on the mission, has said in a statement. We were expecting great things from XE, but seeing the clouds above the limb and in the craters and valleys took my breath away. Hope will remain in an initial orbit for about two months before relocating to its final orbit and beginning its science observations later this spring. Now, in this next article, I think it's rather relevant, especially for looking for possible signs of life and why it wasn't a joke when I said bring a cup of water for various other tests. This could be for one of them, as scientists successfully wake microbes that had remained dormant for 100 million years. The microbes belong to 10 different groups of bacteria that entered an energy-saving state when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth. Scientists have successfully managed to wake a series of microbes that had remained asleep for at least 100 million years. The microbes that existed during the dinosaurs' time have shown traces of growth in the latest studies. A team of scientists in the U.S. and Japan says that these prehistoric microorganisms began to grow and divide despite having entered an energy-saving state when dinosaurs were still walking on the Earth. The microbes belong to 10 different bacteria groups and were recovered from sediments mined in 2010 at the bottom of the South Pacific Gyre, one of the most deserted parts of the ocean in terms of the nutrients. Our results suggest that microbial communities widely distributed in organic poor abyssal sediment consist mainly of aerobes that retain their metabolic potential under extremely low energy conditions for up to 101.5 million years, write researchers in their study. Think about the possibilities. To obtain samples of the maximum possible depth, they drilled wells of up to 100 meters in the seabed at 5,700 meters below the surface. The researchers, led by geomicrobiologist Yuki Morono of the Japan Marine Science and Technology Agency, incubated the sleeping microbes for 557 days in a laboratory. Carbon and nitrogen sources such as ammonia, acetate, and amino acids were supplied to see if they subsequently succeeded in removing from their torpor. It is surprising and biologically challenging that a large fraction of the microbes revived after being buried and trapped for so long in conditions of extreme nutrient and energy deficiency, admits Morono. Microbes are aerobic. They require oxygen to live, and oxygen was present in the sediment samples. According to the researchers, this means that if sediments accumulate gradually on the seafloor at a rate not exceeding a yard or two every million years, oxygen can remain present and allow these microorganisms to survive for extraordinary periods of time. I was skeptical at first, but we found that up to 99.1% of microbes in sediments deposited 101.5 million years ago were still alive and able to grow, says study co-author Stephen DeHaunt of University of Rhode Island. Maintaining a physiological capacity for 100 million years in starving confinement is an impressive feature. We want to understand how these ancient microbes evolved, if at all. Well, certainly they come from somewhere, but this study shows that the subsoil is an excellent location to explore the limits of life on Earth 
explain the researchers, but it could also help us explore the limits of possible life on past Mars as well as extant life on Mars now. But they're not looking for that, remember? But the paper describing the incredible characteristics of the microbes has been published in the journal Nature Communications. This is a great achievement since direct evidence of the physiological nature and survival status of microbial cells in this extremely energy-poor setting is poorly documented. In addition to proving how resistant some microbes on Earth are, the recent study helps us better to understand the possibility of similar microbes existing on other planets or moons in our solar system. Mars, for example, was likely a planet very similar to Earth in the past. Although there is currently no evidence of present life on Mars, bullshit, new exploratory missions of the Red Planet could help reveal whether such microbes could survive beneath the surface of Mars as well. Well, you're not going to find that out from uh, the Perseverance forever. They want to take forever to give you that answer with delusions as if they're really seeking to find that answer for us all. But let's segue from trying to revive life from underground of planetary surfaces, let's segue to a subject of which grows life instead in space. From eight days ago, an article titled, Could Space Greenhouses Solve Earth's Food Crisis? Let's get into this. Could food grown in space greenhouses save us here on Earth? Commercial space services company Nanorax plans to use orbiting greenhouses to create super resilient crops that would thrive in the harshest environments on Earth and help to ward off the looming food crisis resulting from climate change, the company announced in 2020. That's a very good idea, and of course, yes, it could. It should have already been implemented, in my opinion, but the company based in Houston, Texas, signed a contract with the Abu Dhabi Investment Office the ADIO, to open a space-forming research center in the United Arab Emirates that would research resilient crops, fly them in space, and subsequently test the ability of the crops to grow under arid conditions on our planet. According to Nanorak CEO and co-founder Jeffrey Manber, this work builds on decades of research that shows that new mutations in the DNA of plants can emerge in the harsh environment of space that could then lead to the creation of new varieties capable of thriving even in challenging conditions on Earth. There have been many published papers over the years showing specific instances where, in the harsh environment of space, some interesting biomass products emerge that could do quite well even in desert conditions, Manber told Space.com. These plants evolve in space either through changes on the genetic level or through the effects of radiation, the absence of gravity, or a combination of all these factors. According to Professor Liu Lixiang of the Institute of Crop Science of the Chinese Academy of Agricultural Sciences, China has developed and approved more than 200 space-mutated crop varieties for agriculture use since the 1980s. In fact, the second most popular wheat variety currently grown in China, Luyuan 502, was developed through space breeding. Through flying seeds and other plant material in space on recoverable satellites, manned space missions, and high-altitude platforms, we have developed varieties of various crops, including vegetables, wheat, maize, and soybean, Liu told Space.com. 
through the DNA mutations that occur in space and subsequent selection and breeding, we have created varieties that have higher yields, better nutritional profiles, and resistance to diseases, and also require less water or tolerate higher temperatures. China, Liu added, invests into the various plant breeding technologies to ensure that it will be able to feed its nearly 1.4 billion population amid the progressing climate change. The UAE, which, according to Manber, currently imports 90% of the nation's food, is looking to space for similar reasons. With 80% of the country made up of deserts and an overall lack of freshwater resources, only about 5% of the UAE is currently cultivated, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations data from 2016. Research and food production under the extreme conditions of space may hold the key to improving our capabilities in desert and arid climates, an ADIO spokesperson told Space.com. That is why we support NanoRacks as it explores agriculture innovation in space that can be applied to food production in extreme climates on Earth. The Star Lab Space Farming Center that ADIO will create with NanoRacks aims to study and develop new types of bacteria, microbes, biofilms, and plants that would subsequently be sent to space, either to the International Space Station or as part of other cooperations that NanoRacks plans to develop. We hope that at the end of 2021, we will be able to send our first research from Star Lab to the ISS, said Manber. We might set up a small greenhouse in our Bioshop airlock and use it as a test bed and then maybe go into a standalone orbiting autonomous platform greenhouse in the next five years. Manber said that while researchers all over the world are looking at ways to grow food in space for astronauts on the moon and Mars, the Star Lab research project is quite unique as it aims to use space for that benefit of those on Earth. But it doesn't just have to benefit for those on Earth. Uh, but the Chinese Kung Flu and the climate change really opened our eyes to the fragility of food security in both the developing and the developed world, Manber said. We believe that there is a research pathway where space could be one of the contributing solutions to how we can overcome climate change and the increasing hazards of the Earth's climate. Star Lab Space Farming Center will also develop robotic and automated systems for the maintenance of greenhouses in space, which could also be used to improve the efficiency of terrestrial farming, Manberhurt added. So it's definitely a worthy project to be finally focusing on these issues of growing food in space, especially as we segue to the next article, which deals with our second guest tonight, Professor Pekka Jan Hoonan. As he's mentioned a lot through this article, and this is from January 19th, that humans can move to this floating asteroid belt colony in the next 15 years, astrophysicist says. And I know I think I went over this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but being that it's fitting the segue into this show and this new segment now, as well as pertaining to our guest tonight, it's all relevant all the more. But should we build a mega satellite of human habitats around the dwarf planet series? It's more plausible than it sounds. Now more than ever, space agencies and starry-eyed billionaires have their minds fixed on finding a new home for humanity beyond Earth's orbit. Mars is an obvious candidate, given its relatively close proximity, 24-hour day-night cycle, and CO2-rich atmosphere. However, there's a school of spacefaring thought that suggests colonizing the surface of another planet, any planet, is more trouble than it's worth. Now, a new paper published on January 6th 
date to the preprint database, Arxive offers a creative counter-proposal. Dish the red planet and build a gargantuan floating habitat around the dwarf planet series instead. Well, I wouldn't go so far as dish the red planet. I say we should do all these simultaneously. But anyway, but in the paper, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, astrophysicist Pekka Jan Hoonan, who's our guest tonight, of the Finnish Meteorological Institute of Helsinki, describes his vision of a mega-satellite of thousands of cylindrical spacecrafts all linked together inside a disc-shaped frame that permanently orbits Ceres, the largest object in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. Each of these cylindrical habitats could accommodate upwards of 50,000 people, support an artificial atmosphere, and generate an Earth-like gravity through the centrifugal force of its own rotation, Jan Hoonan wrote. This general idea, first proposed in the 1970s, is known as the O'Neill Cylinder. But why Ceres? Its average distance from Earth is comparable to that of Mars, Jan Hoonan wrote, making travel relatively easy, but the dwarf planet also has a big elemental advantage. Ceres is rich in nitrogen, which would be crucial in developing the orbiting settlement's atmosphere, Jan Hoonan said. Earth's atmosphere is roughly 79% nitrogen. Rather than building a colony on the surface of the tiny world, Ceres has a radius roughly one-thirteenth that of Earth. Settlers could utilize space elevators to travel raw materials from the planet directly up to their orbiting habitats. This orbital lifestyle would also address one of the biggest caveats Jan Hoonan sees in the idea of a Martian surface colony. Gravity. My concern is that children on a Mars settlement would not develop to healthy adults in terms of muscles and bones due to their too low Martian gravity, Jan Hoonan told Live Science in an email. Therefore, I searched for an alternative that would provide Earth connected world. Even so, Jan Hoonan's proposal comes with its own caveats that could work against a successful series colony, an outside researcher had pointed out. According to Jan Hoonan's proposal, each cylinder of the Ceres megasatellite would produce its own gravity through rotation. Each cylindrical habitat world would measure about 6.2 miles long, have a radius of 0.6 miles, and complete a full rotation every 66 seconds to generate a single cylinder could comfortably hold about 57,000 people, Jan Hoonan said, and would be held in place next to its neighboring cylinders through powerful magnets like those used in magnetic levitation. That interconnectedness points to the other big living, Jan Hoonan said. New habitat cylinders could be added onto the edges of the colony indefinitely, allowing for near unlimited expansion. Mars's surface area is smaller than Earth's, and consequently it cannot provide room for significant population and economic expansion, Jan Hoonan told Live Science. A series colony, on the other hand, is growable from one to millions of habitats. Beyond the cylinders and their massive disk frame, the colony's main features will be two enormous glass mirrors angled at 45 degrees relative to the disk in order to reflect just enough natural sunlight into each habitat. Part of each cylinder would be devoted to growing crops and trees planted in a five-foot-thick bed of soil derived from raw materials from Ceres, Jan Hoonan wrote. 
the natural sunlight should keep them growing strong. The urban part of each cylinder, meanwhile, would rely on artificial light to simulate an Earth-like day-night cycle. Jan Hoonan does not stipulate where the settlement's oxygen comes from. Well, you're going to need a day-night cycle also for any plants or crops, like we went over in the last article, that this could also be used for. So people would be able to farm in space in these giant cylinders. But Jan Hoonan does not stipulate where the settlement's oxygen comes from. Maybe we could have him stipulate that tonight. But this society of floating cylindrical utopias may sound a bit outlandish. But it has its proponents. In 2019, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, CEO and founder of the private space company Blue Origin, spoke at a Washington, D.C. event about the merits of building O'Neill colonies, similar to the one Jan Hoonan describes here. Bezos was skeptical that such a colony could exist in our lifetime, asking the audience, how are we going to build O'Neill colonies? I don't know, and no one in this room knows. However, Jan Hoonan is more optimistic. In an email to Live Science, he said that the first human settlers could start heading the series within the next 15 years. Manasvi Lingam, an assistant professor of astrobiology at the Florida Institute of Technology, who studies planet habitability, said that the series proposal presents a plausible alternative to colonizing the surface of Mars or the moon, but still lacks some key considerations. Now, why are all these guys so pessimistic about not wanting to do multiple things at once? As I think all those efforts combined would only benefit each other. And they would be closer to each other than they all would be from Earth as the sole dependent. But, again, I'm crazy. But I would say that there are three main caveats, Lingam, who is not involved with the paper told life science. The first is a question of other essential elements other than nitrogen. One key element that isn't mentioned in the paper is phosphorus, Lingam said. The body relies on phosphorus to create DNA, RNA, ATP, a vital form of energy storage in cells. And all organisms on Earth, including any plants colonists might hope to grow in their floating habitats, need it one way or another, but Jan Hoonan's proposal doesn't address where or how this critical element would be obtained. The second caveat is the technology, Lingham said. Collecting nitrogen and other raw materials from Ceres would require mining the planet's surface and extracting those crucial elements from the rocks themselves. This operation likely wouldn't be possible without a fleet of autonomous mining vehicles ready to deploy on Ceres, plus satellites to guide them to the most viable nutrient-rich deposits. The idea is plausible, Lingham said, but technologically we aren't there yet. Just recently on January 15th, the NASA Mars robot was declared dead after it failed to bury itself just 16 feet into the Martian surface, terminating a two-year mission. And I believe they're talking about the Mars Insight and that stupid little mole probe. That was a waste of time and money. Instead of jettisoning off three militaristic-type projectiles into the ground to probe deep and do what it needs to do. But anyway, those technological limitations point to Lingham's third caveat, which is the proposed time frame. Jan Hoonan's proposal suggests that the mega-satellite's first cluster of orbiting habitats could be completed 22 years after mining begins on Ceres. But this estimate assumes the settlement's available power supply grows exponentially each year, beginning immediately and never stalling due to technological or logistical problems. 
That estimate isn't inconceivable, Lingham said, but shouldn't be taken for granted either. That time scale of 22 years might be the lower bound under optimal conditions, but I'd argue that the real time scale could be a lot longer, Lingham said. So it's very interesting and in where it's going, and it's okay. The passions that drives Mr. Jan Hoon into a quicker date. Maybe he has reasons why that could actually happen faster than proposed. I'd like to hear his reasons on that. But it's very interesting on where this could go because we could be colonizing anywhere. But I say we need to also have it on Mars, the moon, all simultaneously for these other aspects and missions to work. If people got the balls and the money behind it all on not a turtleneck sale pay speed policy agenda, but an agenda of which fast pace is of the essence, fast but safe. I don't know if our guests would uh, agree to that or not, but either way, it's still going to be interesting to have him speak with us about this and whatever else he would like to bring us. Well, I guess so that being said, I guess uh, that's enough news for the moment. And I think it's a good time that we should all go to a break and then come back and introduce our guest, Mr. Stephen Bassett. But until then, everyone, I would like you all to please go to www.thefacesofmars.com. That's www.thefacesofmars.com. That's right. And scroll on down the page to see the information about tonight's guests. Be sure to click on their websites and or related subject matters pertaining to these guests. And as listeners to this show could appreciate, we have a motto here. Pack them and smoke them, because you're definitely going to need them when we come back on the Martian Revelation. I'll be back. Don't run. We are your friends. Imagine that everything the U.S. government has told you about UFOs since Roswell has been a lie. Imagine that in the decade after Roswell, the government attempted communication with the aliens and succeeded. And after that, in absolute secrecy, things had gone far, far beyond this. Now imagine that tomorrow, the whole secret program is going to fall apart, and every terrible thing is going to come out. All we have left now is a prayer. Morning Star Pass, the collapse of the UFO cover-up, a fictional but unflinching and terrifying look inside the UFO cover-up, the secret government that supports it, and the world of the aliens themselves, and then how the whole secret kingdom ends. Morning Star Pass, a book that pulls no punches and does not sheath the sword unblooded. Morning Star Pass, plunging boldly where no other book has ventured, captures the whole wondrous nightmare that the UFO experience has become, from bizarre experiments performed on helpless abductees to horrifying mutilations to beyond to the world of secret government supported by its own secret police to the aliens in their secret bases and finally to the beckoning stars themselves the book does this by placing the cover-up humanity and the earth and the real cosmos where humanity and its passions are a part of the universe not an aberration on it then comes the fall of the cover-up and a climax of violence and desperation to leave the human race facing the multi-hued stars with eyes open and seeking 
its place in them. The sands of time have run out for the cover-up for against it, leading an army of investigators and warriors, comes Cassandra Chen, beautiful, driven and doomed, who can save her and us. <laughs> You'll have to read it to find out. Morningstar Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up by Victor Norgard. Get yours today. You can find this at www.firstbooks.com. Now that you've smoked him, let's introduce our guest, because he's out helping the fight to get the secrets out to us all, Mr. Stephen Bassett. And Stephen Bassett is the executive director of Paradigm Research Group, PRG, founded in 1996 to end the governmental-imposed embargo on the truth behind extraterrestrial-related phenomena. He has spoken to audiences around the world about the implications of disclosure, the formal confirmation by heads of state of an extraterrestrial presence engaging the human race. He has given over 1,200 radio and television interviews, and PRG's advocacy work has been extensively covered by national and international media, including being featured on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, The Washington Post, and The New York Times. PRG has assisted numerous organizations and initiatives working to, one, raise public awareness of both the extraterrestrial presence and the truth embargo, and two, convene open congressional hearings to take government and agency witness testimony, and three, incite the political media to appropriately cover the attendant issues. There could be only one outcome to the disclosure advocacy movement, the formal acknowledgement of the extraterrestrial presence by world governments. In 2013, PRG organized a citizen hearing on disclosure at the National Press Club in Washington. In November 2014, PRG launched a two-year political initiatives out of Washington, D.C. that injected the E.T. issue into the 2016 presidential campaign. A podcast out of Washington, D.C. called The Disclosure Wire, based in the National Press Building two blocks from the White House. And Stephen Bassett also has appeared in many documentary films, and his lectures and interviews are well represented on YouTube. So everyone, I would like you all to please click on his links there for the Paradigm Research Group to his website, as well as the link to his podcast, the Disclosure Wire. I'd like to welcome you back to the show, Mr. Bassett. It's been a while since you were on. A lot of interesting things have happened since then, especially regards to the upcoming slow disclosures of the UAPs, the UFO, UAP phenomena being put forth to us by the Pentagon through videos to where also we were just recently dumped, as I'm sure you're aware, of many UFO files that a black vault of John Greenwald's site after being written in the bill for the stimulus plan. And I wonder, Mr. Bassett, do you think any more is going to be coming out since there's still time left? It said within a six-month frame for them to speak to Congress about all it knows about the UAP UFO phenomena. What are your thoughts on that, sir? And do you think that is helping your efforts and to help fight to get us this truce? You can expect a lot more to happen. Ooh. We are... I'm, I'm more convinced than ever. We are finally, after over seven decades since Roswell, mm -hmm. in the final weeks and months of the truth embargo. Uh, I say this as someone who's been up and down with this issue, the disclosure issue, capital D, for 24 years, uh, and watching even more closely the last 12 months 
because uh, I have uh, been stuck in a room with some very large televisions and very good internet, internet right. and paying close attention. Other people are dealing with life, with uh, the pandemic, with many things, and they're seeing uh, this and that in the news popping up, and they're probably scratching their head going, well, who ordered that and what's happening? I get that. Uh, however, I'm pretty the sure that the... I'm sorry. Right. In the middle of all that quagmire going on, that comes out in the news. And it's like, go ahead, sir. Because I think that's where your focus is, is what you're describing. Go ahead. I apologize. Uh, well, essentially, um, yeah, the pandemic, nobody wanted the pandemic. That That's just happening. That happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're now 14 months into it. But the pandemic just meant I was going to watch things even closer. So I'm going, your audience is, I'm going to assume that your audience, particularly you've had the show a long, long time, is well above average in terms of its uh, understanding of this issue and its history. So I'm going to speak at a higher level, if you don't mind. If there's some people that are, are new and are going, wait, I, I, it's hard to follow. Look, yeah. everything I'm talking about is, is at my website, Paradigm Research Group. Dot org or dot com or dot net. I've got all of them. Uh, you can find a lot of it in the print media archive under resources. You can find a great deal of it in the uh, project section under um, to the star. Was it project or its issues? I think it's issue section to the stars academy, uh, where you'll find over 160 videos clips related to the to the stars academy and so forth so there's plenty of information there for you to get up to speed and become quite knowledgeable however i think and i'm trying i've done almost 33 interviews so far this year i've got 20 more booked i'm getting better every time at saying this in fewer words uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but i mean i'm balls out now i, I may do three four hundred interviews this year without even breaking a sweat so look uh over the last three years, since the To the Stars Academy announced their existence in October of 2017, mm-hmm. there have been a series of developments that are somewhat connected together, which are essentially unprecedented. There's been no three-year period like this in the history of this issue and the truth embargo going back to Roswell. There's been some interesting moments Fascinating events. Uh, Sometimes when we were feeling positive that, well, maybe this we're going to break through uh, and so forth, but nothing like the last three years. And the best explanation for why is that after, oh, this is we're talking about roughly 19, I'm sorry, 2015. Mm -hmm. Right. So after about uh, 68 years uh, in, Enough people within the, our own military and intelligence community had, had, had come to the conclusion that the truth embargo needs to end, that it's time to tell the people the truth. Uh, just like uh, John Podesta stated in his famous uh, introductory words at the National Press Club in, 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 uh, in 2002, uh, it's time to release the files to the people because the people have the right to know and it's the law. It's a famous quote. It's on the Internet. I've been talking about it since 2002. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but just because you, you're working in government and want to see the truth out doesn't mean you can just do it. Uh, not so easy. But the fact that support within the military intelligence community had gotten to that point was a milestone. There's always been people in the services, at the DOD, in agencies, CIA, who personally felt uh, the people had a right to know, and we should tell them. But they did not carry the day. They were not a critical mass. And so the policy of critical mass, critical mass, Angel Espino, you hear that? All right, sir. I'm sorry to interrupt. Loud and clear. Loud and clear. All right, sir. That's cool. You can interrupt all you want, dude. It's your show. It's okay. Uh, And I love the background, by the way. That fits you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm in a lawn chair out in front of the Capitol, just in front of the reflecting pool. And there's there's some National Guard guys over here to my side that are kind of looking at me kind of funny. Hopefully they won't grab me and 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 carry me off here before we get uh-huh. done so um uh the, the, uh there's always been people that wanted that but that simply wasn't enough uh the policy was truth embargo it had been in place since the uh, 40s and 50s and it wasn't going to go away easily and so the disclosure movement which was originally small d disclosure movement uh, and Stephen Greer really was the first to make that a thing, uh, has been going on for seven decades, picked up speed in 1990. Uh, so we, we were doing our best, but we couldn't, we couldn't take it across the finish line, and I'm not surprising. But what we were doing, everything that the researchers and the activists and the podcasters and the website uh, creators and uh, all the content uh, providers on this issue in the, in the public domain, working out of their own back pocket, and I'm sure you know about that, set finally bring us to a point where enough people inside the military intelligence complex were willing to, to, to make an effort. Now, they could not act directly. They could not, from their positions, uh, either working for the Army or the Navy or the Air Force or the DOD or the CIA, at that time, oh, you mean, right? I'm at sorry? That, at that time in the historical context. Well, any time. Yeah, yeah, any time frame in there. They, they, they couldn't do it. If, if it would have cost them their job, it could have possibly resulted in jail time. It would have been the end of their career. Their family would have suffered. It just, it wasn't the policy. And the policy was legal. Mm-hmm. But the, the apparently, and I think I know why, the desire to, to maybe help make this happen reached a point such that in the period from 2000, in 2015 and maybe extending into 2016, I, I think it did. How long? I don't know, but it was many months. Right. They came together and came up with an idea. And that idea was let's facilitate the creation of a non-governmental organization. Let's have former members, former uh-huh. colleagues be in that organization, no uh-huh. longer under the payroll of the military intelligence community, citizens. Either well, what retired. about the NDAs? What now? What about their NDAs and stuff like that, though? That, that well, NDAs them? are NDAs, but if, if it, not on the payroll. Got, in other words, you're, not, you're not some colonel in the, in the Air Force working in the Pentagon being paid. Uh, under the chain of command, no, it, they had to be out 
for money. Really? Right. Uh, gotcha. and, and thus civilian. It had to be civilians, then, essentially. And, and somehow that group was put together uh, with the intention of having it announced uh, sometime in 2016, I believe, after the election. But that plan was based upon Senator Hillary Clinton winning the election. And I can talk more about that later. Yes. And she didn't. And as a result, the plan was essentially put on hold until they could figure out what are we going to do now? Because this was a significant effort. This was a and a, and a risky effort. It was non-trivial. People's uh, legacy and potential post-government employ and or future financial future were at risk here. It was a very difficult thing to do. So they waited and they did not launch until about 10 months later, actually 11 months later from the election. Mm-hmm. And they launched. And, and until they launched, I did not know the name. I'd heard something was going on, but not know the names. I don't think anybody did. Uh, in fact, the Department of Defense didn't know. This was this was a surprise. This was not uh, uh, prefaced by a press release. We're going to do this. No, 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 no. So suddenly it's announced October 11th. It was the To the Stars Academy. Mm-hmm. And it had a, um, a cast of, of characters, uh, members, unlike any powerful group of individuals ever come had ever come together to openly address this issue in a formal way. And by formal, I mean, they had an organization. It was a public service organ, uh, uh, company. It, it was it raised it was going to raise money. It had a full website. It had mission statements related to the ET issue in various ways and, and including even entertainment, books, documentaries, a broad, broad uh, uh, spectrum mission statement. Uh, they put out a nice video. And I'm going, that is a big deal. I knew it was a huge deal. In fact, I almost knew immediately what it meant, namely that they were acting in proxy for those inside the military intelligence complex, their names unknown, the the number of people unknown, Mm -hmm. in order to advance the issue, doing things that those people that are sort of having their back cannot do. I knew that, so I knew it was big. The question is, what would they do next? What would be their first action? Yeah, you definitely seem more excited than you were, uh, what, three years ago on this show, uh, with... Uh, other things going on uh, with what you're mentioning. Because since you were last on the show, that's when a lot of this has been coming out, like on Tucker Carlson, especially. Uh, and I think Luis on Elizondo was part of that, correct? Of uh, what you were describing. Have you talked with them? No, but the okay. group included Elizondo, career intelligence with the DOD. Mm-hmm. It included uh, Christopher Mellon, a very high level political operative in the intelligence area, working on both sides within the DOD and also up on the Hill, distinguished man. Uh, It included Steve Justice, who had been a director at the Skunk Works at Lockheed. It included two other career CIA individuals, as well as known researchers like Putoff and so forth. No group had ever come together like this, committed to this project. Okay, fine. But then, as just about every, I'm sure almost everyone on your watching your program, listening to your program knows, uh, the first 
major uh, move by this new citizen proxy group was to deliver major stories to the New York Times in, in 60 days. And those stories included gun camera footage declassified by the Department of Defense at some point in that 2015-16 period, mm-hmm. given to Christopher Mellon, the former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, who gave it to the New York Times to review and vet, along with other information, which the Times did, and was satisfied uh, enough to publish two bombshell articles on December the 16th, 2017, in the front page of the New York Times. Those two articles was, for me, the Rubicon. When they were published, this, this, the disclosure movement crossed the Rubicon. Like the like Caesar's troops crossed the Rubicon to Rome. There was no going back. This was it. And then the question is, how fast would it unfold and so forth? Right. So that that was that's that's the beginning. And a lot has happened since, and it's been well chronicled. Everything that's happened since those two articles, everything of of note without the the internet noise without the theories and speculations to debunking and all the other stuff that now right. comes with any major event because of the internet, which we love. Well, we can't live with it now. We can't live without it. The point is, is that all of that was covered in the news. Uh, and I've archived uh, about 700 articles covering all of the events that emerged from connected to the emergence of the TTSA and those New York Times articles. They're on my website right now. If you go to, uh, again, paradigmresearchgroup.org, mm-hmm. you go under resources to print media archive, go to the archive, then go to October 11, 2017, you will see right then the beginning of these articles. They're earmarked. In other words, it mentions TTSA, all right? Start reading forward from that point chronologically until you get to the present. It's 700 articles. It's the equivalent of about a 400 page book. Read them all. And when you get done, you will be one of the most knowledgeable people on what we're talking about tonight on the planet. And I think you'll feel pretty special about that. Okay. So a lot has happened since then. And all of it, I believe is leading one place, but it has taken time. It took 10 months for the TTSA to launch, and it's taken another three years for it to work through and develop the overall uh, agenda and so forth. Why? Why did it take so long? That was not the plan initially. The plan was to launch in late 2016, early 2017, move aggressively to get the articles into the New York Times, and then move aggressively to get this issue resolved. It is because of politics. It is because of the political history that unfolded. It was not expected. Uh, It was unusual. There have been plenty of moments like this in our nation's history and in the history of other nations. We got a a president. Yeah, I was sorry to interrupt. I was going to say that uh, especially during this time frame, the pushing vocally and then the outright creation of a new branch of the military called the Space Force. This cannot be a coincidence. 
not exact. It's not this. Don't don't focus too much on the space force. It's not that important. All right, that the, the TTSA did not help bring about the space force. That no, was I mean something- the overall. I mean the overall push. That aside, but the push to create guardians because of the threats coming from deep space. The president was selling that on. That helped bring out the the signing and bringing it all in, telling General Dunford to go get it. I say go get what. And then connecting it with this push now, like and based on Brookings, and I know you're well familiar with that uh, in your research and from other venues with others, about Brookings. I believe now we're at the time where we must be told in the Brookings scenario. It cannot be possible. And then where do you think it's leading? Because obviously now you seem excited. There's more things coming. Obviously there's a lot put out now in such a short time compared to previous years. You, you, you're sensing an importance to it, but what is the real reason of that importance to get us to know? Not just that we want to know, but like Brooke is, we have to know. Like you said, we have to know anyway. Uh, look, Gary, I, I appreciate your thoughts and perspective on this, but I'm, I'm going to I'm going to try to tell you what I think, and I, I, that's not what I think. Uh, okay. Brookings has not, very little to do with this. Brookings mm-hmm. was. 60 years ago. Right. Uh, And it was not, it wasn't what it really meant. It was mostly propaganda. The Space Force is incidental. What what is most important here is that the last four years was an extremely unusual political episode in American history. Yes. It was unprecedented. It was uh, so unprecedented that uh, all of the major players and institutions spent a great deal of the last four years trying to figure out what to do, how to respond. There was an enormous amount of confusion and uncertainty and distraction. Uh, and, but that happens. I mean, it, it, it's, not, it's not that America is immune from that, but all of this was extremely, was, was very, uh, un, unhelpful. It was it was the wrong setting. It was the wrong conditions, I guess and it might say. You know, it was a a very bad time to try to pursue the agenda that the TTSA had intended to pursue. And Did so, you think it, President Trump helped that effort, no. or was that part of the reason politically to wait? And or would he be a threat to that overall? But you like you said, it's all political, obviously. It, it, Let's just put it this way. The administration's, the situation and the circumstances of the last administration was very, very counterproductive to the process and the agenda that was being pursued. And so it was stretched out, all right, stretched out to see, to give it time to see whether it would, how would you say, settle down. Okay. The TTSA waited 10 months before they ultimately uh, announced. Now, they could have waited longer uh, to see if conditions would improve. But these people involved essentially stepped into the public domain uh, in, uh, well, they were, let me put it this way, this program was somewhat outed 
by the election of 2016, November, uh, it was outed because, first of all, uh, uh, the ultimate CEO of this group, Tom DeLong, had referred to it extensively with, uh, in an interview with George Knapp in March of 2016. And a lot of people heard that interview, including me. And so we knew something was in the works, but he did not get specific, but he was pretty excited and he mentioned a lot of inside connections. Okay, fine. But then, and we weren't supposed to, I think, hear anything else until they launched. But again, history intervened. In the last days before the election of 2016, Julian Assange made a fateful decision getting his hands on 50,000 emails from John Podesta's computer, uh, allegedly from Russian hackers. I have no reason to, to, to think otherwise. He released them to the public, 5,000 uh, emails a day over a period of about 10 or 12 days, which had a significant impact on the election because there were things in there which were embarrassing to the Democrats. However, there were also 92 emails in there because I watched them all and, and all 92 of these are on my website in my blog on a, a, at paradigmresearchgroup.org in which I have pulled them out, I have earmarked them and I have put comments on them and you can go read all 92 of them on my website. And I knew there were emails like that in his computer so I was eager to see some of them, some of them were mine, however, 40 uh, of those emails involved Tom DeLong. And what we learn is DeLong and whatever project he was working on right. had already approached over a period of weeks, uh, months, Podesta, who was the campaign chair for Hillary Clinton, who was in, in almost everyone's um, view, the next president. She was seemed to be a lock to win the presidency. Oh, it so, was. They were putting it together. They, they, they were planning something and they brought him in. So we sort of knew that. So right. that made it clear that there was something formal in the works. Right. And, and, and I think a couple of names got outed, too, in those emails. And I'm not going to out them again, but they weren't supposed to be in the public domain. So that was an embarrassment. But the election goes another way. That kind of moves back into the background. Nobody's paying so much attention to that because there's immediately dozens and dozens of memes and scandals and everything else on the net. Mm -hmm. And then eventually they launch uh, 10 months later in October. All right, so the situation was simple. We have a plan. This plan is not going to work uh, under this administration. However, we have been outed. And either we shut it all down and go our separate ways or we hang in there. But these people were, were hanging out because even before they launched in October, more and more people inside the military intelligence complex were figuring out what the hell was going on. And so they had a choice. We either launch or we just somehow hang back for four years. Well, they, they're, they're not they're not young people. I mean, they're up there. They're they're careerists. And just to sit on their hands for four years was going to be brutal. So they went ahead and launched. Good for them. And then they proceeded to do what they could do during this hurricane, this political hurricane. 
Look, I, some people are not political. They don't give a damn what happens in Washington. And I can understand that, I assure you. But I was paying attention. I was in Washington for part of that. And, right. and I've been in Washington the last 14 months. And let me tell you, what's been going on in this town is beyond anything I've ever seen in my lifetime. And in some cases has never happened in the history of the Republic 240 years. All right. right. And so they, they've dragged it out. Because they didn't, they had, they had, they had one fundamental um, uh, issue to, to consider: Would this administration extend to a second term, or would it not? If it extended to a second term, they would have had another decision. Things may get better, they may get worse, but there is no way that we can somehow slow walk this for four more years. And so, probably, come hell or high water, they were going to have to move forward into whatever the circumstances were in a second Trump administration. On the other hand, if it was going to shift to a new administration, if we were going to have a new government in this in, in this town, then the prospects would be very much improved. Now, these so people does that, are con- Biden, does that make Biden the new Clinton as the new log as it was then for this? Is that where you're going? Yeah, Biden is going to be the disclosure president. Yeah. So they so so now these people are well connected. They okay. all have connections back into the military intelligence complex, the DOD, the CIA. All right. They have connections that they can get information from that you and I would only dream of. Right. And the the these agencies have a have a lot of access to information and what's going on and highly sophisticated uh, software and tech to analyze and so let's just say that they probably get an idea who's going to win the election before we do, before the New York Times does. Oh, I'm sure of that. Okay. So I believe they were they had a pretty good idea that there was going to be a new administration early mm-hmm. in 2020. Uh, and and so maybe even as early as late 1919, 2019. But and so they started picking up the pace anticipating a lot of things were happening, anticipating that change was coming. Right. right? And there were two fundamental changes that they were watching most closely. Would there be a new president, which obviously by uh, late, late 2020 was was going to be Biden. Right. Though in the early early in that year, it wasn't clear, uh, but it was going to be a Democrat. Uh, and and. What would happen to the Senate? The Senate was very important here. And mm-hmm. so they're watching that and they're they're making their calculations. The presidency, I think they felt confident about the Senate. No one could feel confident about. And so but so they that, so things picked up a little more. All right? right. And obviously, on November the third. The uh, presidency was essentially established, though it took a while for it to be. How would you say? uh formalized. The Senate, on the other hand, was going to hang out for quite a while. It wasn't wasn't cleared up until January the 5th. So that's the political setting. All right. right. Now, within that setting. Since the launch of the TTSA, the list of things that have happened that are unprecedented. In the history of the extraterrestrial phenomena and the U.S. government's embargo on the on that phenomena 
is just one thing after another, and I'm following it all. And because of what has happened, and we can get into any particular you want to mention, there's at least a dozen things just off the top of my head, right. I have come to a pretty firm conclusion. The agenda of the To the Stars Academy, meaning the key people associated right. with it, aside from its mission statement, which I know it's going to continue to pursue, with the using the money they raised about two and a half million, though they expected to raise far more than that, but whatever, right? From the beginning, was to do what anybody in this field that was politically savvy have understood from from the get go was to secure p congressional hearings on the UAP, and that's what it should be called now. It's not UFO; it's UAP. So you, you, you agree to that political term now, and but unidentified is the real factor in either of those phrases. Right. Sir, are they identified? Un, they're, they're, UAP means unidentified or right. unexplained. It's used right. both ways. Aerial um, phenomenon or phenomena, UAP. It means exactly the same as UFO. Exactly the same. There is no difference. So why all this effort to switch to that acronym? And, and the reason is actually fairly simple. UFO was the acronym that goes back to the early 50s that has literally become the centerpiece of the entire citizen science research effort, right. appearing in the conference titles, book titles, report titles. And putting right. a crazy label factory of that yeah. thought, and therefore this is now switches policy to where there's no longer a giggle factor as it was. You're close. Okay. UFO, in other words, the truth embargo succeeded uh, in doing a number of things, which is why it's lasted as long as it has. And one of it, one of the key things that truth embargo accomplished was demeaning the entire field and everybody in it, diminishing yes. them, demeaning them, isolating them. We go through them these issues with Mars images too, sir, and it's uh, ridiculous, but uh, these changes, that's why I feel your spirit. I, 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 your blood's flowing, man. <laughs> so, so, but one, but, so, but that, they needed a target for that ridicule. Right. And the target was that acronym. That acronym was kind of the centerpiece. And it's a bogus acronym in a way. It's 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 incorrect. But it, and it's and it's beautifully uh, 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 it's beautiful for the truth embargo. Unidentified flying objects are all we know is they're an object. They're flying and they're unidentified. That could be anything. And so if, if that's the whole essence of what you're doing is you're spending decades studying unidentified flying objects. It's clear that as long as you use that acronym. You're not making any progress. If you were making progress, you would start to be uh, investigating identified flying objects. And so they heaped all the ridicule on that acronym so that anybody that even utters it, puts it in their book title, instantly yeah. is ghettoized, intellectually ghettoized. All right? all right. You're a UFO guy. You're a UFO believer. And so it was it, it became institutionalized. It became a huge liability, but it was very difficult to break from it. So we yes. have worked 
we have worked to get that to try to, we're not going to eliminate it completely, I assure you, but, but moving to UFA, UAV, unidentified, UAV. UAV I, is, I know all the acronyms, all these, uh, <laughs> even though it means exactly the same thing, it doesn't carry all of that baggage. And right. not surprisingly, what you have seen happen in the last couple of years is the Navy and the DOD and the politicians are Being using you they're using UAV, aren't they? That tells you something, doesn't it? Because we made it safer. They don't want to say UFO, but they're more comfortable saying UAV. Okay, so UAV. The what what has been happening has made it clear to me that that agenda to get congressional hearings is now moving forward aggressively. Ooh. And that uh, 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 hearings on the ET UAV issue. You think before or after the six month deadline that was laid out and by what was already given the Greenwald that was dumped and the other things that uh, you're referring to that's on the website. Uh, now, you know, you know, you see where I'm going now. What is, where is the scale of that disclosure? Or never mind that. There's a process, obviously, like you're saying. So at at that point, at least in that it was allotted to give to the people and or Congress and and the people rather uh, this this dump. At what point will these congressional hearings, in your opinion, will you be part of it to help it before or after that deadline? for this to immediately go forth. Strike right. when the iron's hot. Well, you brought up three or four different things here. Look, uh, yeah. put the, put the uh, information dump aside for a second. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to be formally part of the hearings, I can assure you. I'm going to follow the whole process, and I'm going to do 100 interviews at least with, by, by the end of uh, March. Mm -hmm. uh, possibly by the end of March, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm the political activist. I'm on the outside looking in. I'll try to keep the public informed, but I'm not inside looking out. All right. But, okay. Be nice. so, so hearings are now, the, 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 the process leading hearings is well along and they are now possible. The question is when? Now, the, the two most important things supporting, and there's many things supporting this assessment of mine, which is an assessment. I haven't right. been given a private secret email from anybody. Fair enough. This is my assessment, and I could be wrong. But the two most important things is that we know with certainty that the lead political operative, that it, it was in the TTSA team, it was launched in October 2017, Christopher Mellon, with the assistance of Luis Elizondo, has been setting up meetings on the Hill going back at least 18 months. Privately, up on Capitol Hill, they have been giving members of Congress, and certainly including committee chairs, chairs of key committees, not the Agricultural Committee, but committees like the Intelligence Committees, Armed Services, so forth, mm. briefings, private briefings, so they could talk to witnesses and ask questions. These briefings have been off the record. They are not announced. The transcripts are not put out, and the, there's no press release. 
There, this is perfectly legal. These are information briefings, all right? We still do not know exactly what these members of Congress were told. We do know that they've happened because uh, a few of these uh, members of Congress have confirmed it publicly, whether they should have or not. A couple have taken some action, but they have happened. Now, let me tell you, mm-hmm. for, the, for, for decades and decades, a lot of attempts were made to, to brief members of Congress to get them in a position where they would support hearings. I've tried, Stephen Greer has tried, others have tried. I don't know how many attempts there have been. They've all failed. Mm. Uh, why? Well, maybe the time wasn't right, but mostly because nobody in this field, and I mean nobody in this field, certainly including me, has the gravitas of the group that the TTSA announced in 17. Right. Uh, and uh, nobody has the connections inside the military intelligence complex than, we, that, that, than they have. And so they got these meetings. And Mellon is the key person here. It's almost okay. like the mysterious cue. I'm sorry? It's almost like the mysterious cue, you know, relying on these sources, but these sources are yielding results. Now, Congress. Uh, people- Gary, I, I got to stop you there. Look, hang on. I do not in any way want to associate the TTSA people with Q. No, no, no. I have, I I have no idea who Q is, I don't care who he is. And this whole this whole Q bullshit has been nothing but a liability and a wart on the public's backside. Uh, uh, let me be clear about that. Way. Okay. okay. All right. right. So, uh, so the you don't have all, briefings on the Hill with members of Congress unless you have a reason. You're not right. just going up there because you'd like to chat about it. Right. Or just would be kind of fun to talk to them. And these witnesses, pilots in the Navy and others are not going up there to talk to them because they 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 they, they want to get a free meal at the at the house. Reason is almost certainly preparation for hearings. OK, point one, point two. If you're going to have hearings, you've got to have witnesses. If you're going to have witnesses, they need to be the best possible witnesses. And if you're going to have hearings with witnesses, you have to have a reason that is both appropriate and politically safe. Mm. Do we have all of that? Oh, yes. So we know that the hearings are there's preparation being made. The witnesses will be military witnesses. Where are they coming from? They're coming from people that have been vetted and interviewed by Louis Elizondo. He is the man that is garnishing the witness testimony. A lot of that is already, some of that has been seen on the unidentified program, which in my view was created and run on History Channel specifically to gather witnesses. Because what they did is they put pilots and others uh, on that program testifying to some pretty amazing things related to this issue. A few were in silhouette, most of them on camera with their name, and nothing happened to them. And so consequently, amongst the thousands, 
and I mean thousands and thousands of, of active and retired military working in the military intelligence complex who have information about this issue in one form or fashion, we're seeing that speaking out may not be a risk, right? If, if, particularly if they stayed within non-disclosure agreements, though some might actually violate an NDA. And if they wanted to do that, who were they gonna call? They were gonna contact the TTSA. Now we've got confirmation that scores of military people had contacted the TTSA. I think the focus was Elizondo and thus could be vetted. And so I have concluded that they have ample military witnesses who are capable and willing to testify under oath before Congress. Why is it important that they be military witnesses? There are two reasons. One, anyone who has been in the military or is in the military has taken an oath, right? To defend the constitution, the country. And two, all right, uh, they have that gravitas of being in the military and because of that, it serves the third important thing, which is the basis for the hearings. The basis for the hearings is national security. It has always had to be that. There's no shock here. In other words, if you're going to get the New York Times to risk putting major stories on their front page and then write more stories later on, if you're going to get extremely skittish politicians and committee chairs to actually call for a hearing in front of their committee on camera, likely to be seen by tens, if not hundreds of millions of people, you had better have a safe, appropriate reason. It can't be a reason to determine whether or not to construct an extraterrestrial welcoming center for the ETs when they land. That's not going to get you the hearing. It has to be childhood's end. (laughs) Exactly. So, uh, so the whole, when you look at the history of the, e, the, the To The Stars Academy, everything they've done and said, the national cure, security aspect is a thread throughout. And you frequently hear the phrase potential threat, which is appropriate. Often you will hear the word threat, which is not appropriate, but I'm not surprised that it gets it. So ETs, national security, potential threat, that's what you have to have. All of that package has been put together. And so I concluded that once the new administration was settled in, these hearings are ready to go. Okay, that's a pretty significant thing right there. Right. But other things have happened which affect the time frame. Now, two of the things that are affecting the time frame that could push the hearings further into 2021, which were not there uh back in december right uh because when when the when the state certified the election it was pretty much over at that point and so i started doing media i i got back into eat media started doing interviews and i started talking like this but i was aggressive i said these hearings could start as soon as february late february for instance and should but two things developed after that 
One is the vaccine, vaccine, vaccination schedule rolled out slowly. It was not moving nearly as fast as I think people would want. Uh, and so that's a factor. And secondly, I call it the rise of the variants. It was in late November that we started learning about the variants. Now, all, all uh, um, uh, of these uh, 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 pathogens, they, uh, viruses, mutate. Everybody knows that. Uh, and so it was, it was not surprising that there were variants, but in order to pick up the variants, you've got to do genomic testing. Now, some nations were doing huge amounts, millions of, of uh, genomic tests on, on viruses as they emerged or as they were found. The U.S. was not. But finally, there was enough genomic testing, genomic testing, that they were picking up a lot of variants. The, in, even in the U.S., they found nearly 700. They were finding them around the world. Well, it turns out that a couple of these variants were, in fact, a problem. Hmm. And we learned that. We learned that first they were more infectious, and, and that was not good. And then we learned that they might be more deadly, and that's definitely not good. And then we learned the possibility that they might be a little more resistant to the vaccines that were already in the works. Now, these are big new developments in this pandemic. And so that meant that more progress had to be made. Hearings were not going to happen in, or in late February. I, I think now the soonest we could see hearings, which have to happen in a relatively stable environment. These hearings are not going to be on Zoom. They must be in person. Right. So you need, you need a lot of vaccinated people. You need a pretty safe environment up there. Uh, and so I think the soonest is late March, early April. All right. And, and, and that is... That's still early. Yeah, that's uh, agreeable. <laughs> the vaccination schedule is now picking up speed, as you know. Mm-hmm. In fact, I just got my appointment. I'm finally, after 10 at tries, going to get my my first shot. Uh, so there's that. That was that was that. These were the factors that then became, I think, for me, most significant. Okay. Now, on the other hand, the other side, right? The Congress has to call them. The president does not call hearings. Congress calls hearings, specifically the committee chairs call hearings, which is why the outcome of the Senate was also very important to this process. Okay. And as it happened, and it was quite unusual, the Senate swung to the Democrats because of the Georgia elections. Why is that important? Mm-hmm. You're trying to get hearings in the Congress on what is easily the most controversial subject in history, though nonpartisan. I mean, you can be controversy and not be partisan, right? Controversial. Right. Uh, it's very important that both houses have the same party in charge so that all of the committee chairs are, in fact, the same party. That way, if you are able to convince the House to hold some hearings, you don't have the risk that the Senate is going to say, this is all baloney, we're not holding hearings on this, and you've got this again, right? Not the case. So this is good. So they have to they have to call these hearings. Mm-hmm. Now what 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 are what are the concerns there? Now this is where I wish I could wave, wave a magic wand 
right? And right. ask my fairy godmother <laughs> to somehow go inside the brain of some very high-level operative on the hill and tell him, y y maybe you should talk to Steve Bassett about this, get his thoughts on it, right? And some consulting right. or whatever the hell. But that's not going to happen. And so I shall offer my consulting free of charge without being asked on this show and another 70 shows between now and the end of March. All right. Yes. These hearings absolutely must have ha come as soon as possible. All right. There are a number of reasons. Let me give them to you. Yep. The first reason. One of the many things that happen in, as the response coming from government, from agencies, from the DOD, from the Navy, pick an entity, Harvard University's astronomy department, was that one of the committee chairs that was briefed, in this case, Marco Rubio, by pilots, I'm quite sure, and very likely Mellon was there. I think Mark Warner, the ranking member, now the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, may have been briefed at the same time, but Rubio took action. And it was his decision to put the language in their appropriations bill calling for information from some agencies like the Navy and the Office of Naval Intelligence and some other entities to be delivered to the Intelligence Committee because obviously all these things are turning up in the news and all these reports and things. I mean, you've seen them all. And they're, again, they're on my website and they're seeing all of this and you think it's appropriate. They, they should, let's, let's, what's going on? Right, all eyes on Washington. What's up with this? Yeah, give us, a, give us an update. We want to know this. We're the Intelligence Committee. We're asking for this. Now, the language was not in the enumerated section of the appropriation bill. It was in the comment section. Okay. So I don't know how much legal um, force it has. But generally, you don't ignore a request from the Intelligence Committee. And this got a lot of press for Marco Rubio because he did it. For Marco Rubio, he didn't do it out of a burning desire to, um, how would you say, get the truth to the American people. But he did it like so many other people. And I'll put this simply because he's a very smart guy. He's very transactional. And he's not the only person in Washington, D.C. has figured out that the disclosure train, capital D, some now like to prefer to call it the confirmation train and both meaning the same thing, capital D disclosure confirmation mm -hmm. that the president of the United States at some point is going to confirm to the American people that there's ETs here. That's disclosure, capital D or the confirmation of it, whatever. He's seeing that coming and he's seeing that that train is starting to warm up the engine in the station that they're stocking the dining car and that thing's going to be leaving pretty soon and that's going to be a big deal and he wants on that train. And so by putting that language in that bill, he essentially put himself into, put himself on that train. Now it's beautifully done. This was very clever, very smart. He puts the language in the bill. Right. He puts a 180-day time frame on it from the date the bill is signed. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, the bill could have been signed months 
before it was. I mean, but again, the political situation in Washington was what it was. And so the deadline for that delivery of information from these agencies could easily have been in March. But the bill didn't get signed till the end of the year. And so the deadline is in mid-June. Okay? Okay, fine. Which means that whatever is coming in, it's 180 days out. All right, plenty, and, and the election will be over. The government will be settled. Plus, Rubio was not up for election in 2020, so his risk was minimal. All right, mm. very good play on his part. Okay, so he did it. Now, not surprisingly, that generated a lot of press. Anything that happens is generating a lot of press, even though, but it's not enough that it can overcome the other things that are going on. It still has to stay you know, beneath these other massive, credible things, pandemics and, and political, you know, the odd insurrection, whatever the hell. But nevertheless, it got a lot of press. Okay, good. It's great. And a lot right. of people, and, and, and like everything else that's happening, plenty of people on the internet jump on it and just run with it. Okay? They try to make a big deal because the anticipation and interest and excitement about disclosure, not just lights in the sky, has never been higher. Right. And so they go there. People are saying, oh, the disclosure is going to be this release of documents coming in June. OK, now, That's Mr. Mr. Bassett, that brings up a question, though, because obviously, as this all has to play out in the way that it is and what you're describing again, I don't mean to interrupt, but is it on the timeline of those? or let's just say, lack of a better word, intelligent people's timeline and whatever it is that they're, they have planned for us and Earth. I, I don't, you mean ETs? If you talk about ET timeline? Yeah. Upon... No, I forget. You don't even think about it. The okay. ET timeline, we don't know what it is. We have no way of knowing what it is, so it's just not a factor. If, they, if one day they may tell us, but for now it doesn't matter. only thing that matters is, is our timeline. All right? So... So that's that's the uh, the the other issue is uh, so he did that okay all right and that but that's important all right so issue so the first reason why it's absolutely essential that and let, let me mention something else I didn't quite finish on I'm sorry yeah. is that no no not you it's me from for years I've pretty much been saying the same thing. The way to disclosure is through congressional hearings. That's the way it has to happen. doesn't mean the president couldn't just get up one day and do it, but that would be politically unwise and probably just uh, uh, irresponsible. It would not be good. It needs to happen through hearings, which is why we've been trying to get them for decades. That would force it's, hearings, though. <laughs> Maybe it's, it would why, be it's, it's why I raised and spent, I don't know, $650,000 in wow. 2013 to hold a mock congressional hearing. Wow. Which, as you recall, was called the Citizen Hearing on Disclosure. And I held it in the National Press Club, two blocks from Washington, 10 blocks from the Capitol. And I brought in 52 witnesses, 42 witnesses, many of which were military witnesses. Right. And right. we held a mock hearing with six mem former members of Congress conducting it very much the same as regular hearings would be conducted. And we filmed it all, and then we delivered the entire 30 hours of testimony to every member of Congress. I did that to show as many people that cared to pay attention what real hearings would kind of look like. And everybody that's ever 
watched it, it's told me the same thing. They look great. They were wonderful. They would be just fine. Thank you very much. That's why I did that. All right. And then I went to Washington and, 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 and got involved in the, the uh, 2016 15-16 campaign. So right. that was the point. All right. So we, so the, 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 the first reason, and the, and the reason you have to have hearings first is because it's responsible and it's, it is the way that will, will be the least disruptive and it's the way that most all of the parties involved will win. It's a win, 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 which is how you, you should run companies and run government and people are starting to learn that, and, and some get it, some don't. Win, 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 win. I'll explain that. But number one, the U.S. government has been delivering us awful information for seventy years. Yeah. The quote, you, the UAP, formerly UFO-ish, did more f freedom of information requests than any other subject untold thousands of them and the government basically doesn't give you much of anything uh, because people don't understand the freedom of information act they think it's a legally binding thing you file an foia and whatever you're asking for if they've got something they have to give it to you ah, i'm sorry no they don't they the government will not give you anything it doesn't want you to have period no matter how well you phrase it and if you don't like it, you can spend a lot of your money to sue them, and that won't work. All right. So if something is classified, you're not going to get it. On right. occasion, though, and this is why all those thousands of Freedom of Information Act filings were important, though incredibly laborious. Hats off to John Greenwald, Larry Bryant, and others. I mean, mm -hmm. I couldn't do what they did. They, they filed so many that occasionally the government had to throw a bone, had to toss a bone out, right? If they if they stonewalled every one of them, it would be pretty obvious that, man, they're totally, totally uh, not above board on this. And so they'd throw out a bone. Stanton Friedman loved to talk about it. You'd get yeah. something from them and, and you go, wow, I got something. And then 90 percent of it would be redacted. So you got that. Right. Or they'd throw out something that looked interesting, but it, it wasn't that big a deal, but it was something. But the, the amount of information they have on this subject is this, okay? The amount we've gotten is this. However, so many Freedom of Information Acts were filed, requests were filed, that on occasion we got something by accident. Hey, you, find, you, you make thousands and thousands of requests Different people are involved and somebody just not thinking and they go ahead and go, OK, we'll send them this. And it turns out, oh, you shouldn't have sent that. So we got some of that. So over the years, we've, it's accumulated stuff and documents that have been helpful. All right. right. But overall, no. And so anybody who thinks that the ONI or any other agency no later than June, and, it's a, and that's a deadline. I mean, they could deliver it tomorrow. They could deliver it in a month, whatever. Right. That's just a deadline that is suddenly going to deliver us some really first-class, juicy information right. about this subject is making a very big mistake, all right? Mm -hmm. they, have they have done stuff in the past uh, flagrantly uh, in the face of presidential requests. They have stonewall U.S. presidents. 
They have lied. They have done a lot of things. Legal. It's all legal. It's national security based. Okay. So you can't assume that. So now follow my logic here. Say we don't have hearings. Say, say decide to put it off. There's so much going on. We've got so many problems, financial and disease and all this kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, it's been 74 years. The world can wait another couple of years. Let's just push it down the line. Mm-hmm. And then come June, these agencies deliver up a bunch of gruel. Not much at all. Nothing right. significant. Boom. Suddenly, everybody in Congress that's been contemplating the idea of having hearings is going, oh, God, we can't have hearings now. And it, there's hardly anything there. It, it's basically telling everybody, I'm sorry, once again, you know, you're looking for all this stuff. We haven't got it. I'm so sorry. And mm-hmm. that it could literally just cut the hearing process off at the knees. Trevor Smoon, Smoon. Sorry, Trevor. Trevor asks, uh, does Robert Bigelow have a craft in his possession? No. No. Okay. So now, on the other hand, if hearings were begun in Congress, and again, by that, I do not mean the last hearing we had, which was 1968. That's been 52 years since we had a hearing. One day, four witnesses in the chamber, some other reports. One day and done, okay? Which was essentially a show. I'm not saying that the, the, the witnesses weren't legit and they weren't trying, but the whole thing was a show. It was, hey, we held a hearing, shut up, go away now. And that's just one of a thousand ways that the embargo was maintained. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about hearings that will last for days and weeks, minimum, multiple committees with a few private uh, hearings uh, for some classified information. I'm talking the real deal, all right? And again, exclusively military witnesses, all right? If those hearings get underway in, say, late March, and that testimony starts coming out, then everybody in those agencies is watching that, and there is no way that they're going to deliver up a bunch of redacted nonsense and say, hey, that's all we got. Uh Uh-uh. They're going to be utterly compelled to deliver some serious stuff. And so in the middle of these hearings, in comes new, very profound material from key agencies with new revelations. And that just gets right into the hearings and off we go. All right. That's the first and most important reasons my hearings have to be soon. Do you okay. think the Mars missions might be able to help out with some of that, or is that would that be compartmentalized, unrelated? No, no. There's a whole lot of things happening hmm. right now that are not coincidental. I like that you smiled, so that gave me hope. Oh, I remember yeah. hope is around Mars now, too. <laughs> so, uh, as you say, we've been heading for hearings. We needed a new administration. We got that. We needed a Unified Congress, we got that. And so the stage is set easily to have hearings early in the administration, but the pandemic is going to delay it a little bit. All right, we not, got surprising, like, not surprising, we got like, literally, as we're approaching that possibility, Yes. Chinese are in orbit to land. The United States puts a, 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 a rover on Mars. The United States has a rover on Mars, and Israel has got a and orbiting on Mars, all of them looking for life. Interesting, okay? So let's just 
speculate a little bit. If you were planning to have hearings, and you, your, your plan was to have these hearings. We have seven minutes, sir. I'm sorry. Go ahead. If you were planning on having these hearings and, and, and knowing that the witness testimony from these military witnesses was going to be powerful, compelling, right. was going to be watched by hundreds of millions of people to the point where, and this is where the win-win-win comes in, the president and congressional leaders and top DOD officials can come together privately and conclude that the evidence is clearly overwhelming. Mm -hmm. It confirms the ET presence. And we've watched it and the public has watched it. And so now I think we can go before the public, meaning the president, and say, I've watched the evidence with you. Clearly, uh, the ET presence, I think, is the only explanation. It's confirmed. And I want to confirm to you that I had other meetings and discussed it. And so I, I can confirm to you there is an ET present. That's confirmation. That's formal confirmation. That's disclosure, capital D. That's where this has always been heading. And right. so if you know that's coming, and that's kind of the plan, and because, again, the process of the hearings informs the public. It allows the Congress to get a lot of the glory. It allows the DOD to participate. Everybody is looking like they're on the side of the public and truth, and which is what they need to look like because disclosure is not going to be an easy path. It is going to generate huge public relations problems for living politicians and living members of the military intelligence complex, whether or not they had a thing to do with the ET truth embargo. Right? So that's why it's important to have the hearings. But wow, if prior to the hearings, after all of these years, lo and behold, one of the rovers preferably Perseverance, do I love right. that name, Yes. discovers and confirms life on Mars. Uh, it could be fossil life, meaning we have found fossils that are absolutely uh, from former living entities, right. microbes, whatever the hell, doesn't matter, or living life, living microbial organisms in the soil. Clearly, if they're living here now, there must have been a, a life history. Or any uh, features you, of archaeological uh, significance. <laughs> or you could you could ramp it up. I mean, you could find a sculpture. Well, right, right. Right in the middle of a rock that clearly had to be made by intelligent beings. They might be dead a billion years. doesn't matter. That, that would be a little higher. But whatever. If you were to confirm life on Mars right around the, uh, you know, February, March, that would be a wonderful lead-in to these hearings, now, wouldn't it? It would get the public totally focused right away, boom, right? But totally safe. Okay. It, 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 you know, a billion-year-old life on Mars. I don't think you need to be concerned about that. But a wonderful lead-in. And then the scientific community is now a win, isn't it? It's uh, a win-win, all right, for them. The perfect lead-in. And so I have tweeted just the other day. Hmm. I said, if somebody will give me the odds, reasonable odds, you, you may want to consider wagering on life on Mars, fossil or living, being confirmed within the next 60 days. I feel really good about that. And, and so that's throw up the hearing or at least a catalyst to make it appropriate. It's the perfect lead in. I mean, look, if you're a member of Congress and you're, st and you're a committee chair and you're still 
queasy about, man, I know these are military witnesses. I'm going to bring them in, but they're going to be testifying to nuclear weapons tampering and, you know, these sightings and everything. And the subject is still embargoed. There still hasn't been an announcement. And if it goes wrong, my political career was toast. See, the committee chairs are the ones that bring the hearings. And so if a hearing goes bad, it's the chair that takes the heat. Right. And more than a few political careers have been ruined because of chairs of committees that conducted some ridiculous committee hearing that they should never have done. McCarthy comes to mind, but there's been others. Uh, So this takes that heat off. It's perfect. And so I'm just now. Now, the reason that I'm smiling when I say this and the reason why I I feel very confident that it could happen. Mm -hmm. And I I think 90 percent of your viewers are going to know exactly what I'm about to say, is there has been a truth embargo on the ET issue. We know that. And confirming life outside the Earth would have been a significant impact on the truth embargo. So I'm going to speculate that NASA or the JPL and anybody else in the military intelligence complex with a need to know has known there's been life on Mars for decades. Yes. All right and water on Mars for decades, but no. And so all they have to do is announce it now, but they, 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 they can't announce it in the sense that, hey, uh, yeah, there is life on Mars and we've known about it for 35 years. It's best if they can say, yeah, uh, hey, guess what? Perseverance just discovered life on Mars. You see, that's a lot safer. Now, later on, they'll be asked those harder questions. And at some point, they'll probably have to say, yeah, you know, we we did know earlier, but we, we couldn't talk about it. It was a truth embargo, so sorry. But again, so if they already know, which I think they do, if they want to announce it, uh, Perseverance just has to come up with something. And, and let me tell you. And by the way, if you if you listen to all of the press about Perseverance and the Chinese rover and the Israeli, the one thing they all have in common is they said specifically these Rovers and observers are there to look for life on Mars, not that not uh, as a side thing. okay, but to look for it. So there you have that. Okay, that's something else. All right. But now let's get down to the politics. And this is where I'm speaking to the White House, which I'm sure is watching your show. You know what they are. That would, yeah, be a good place to, uh, that would be a good place to final it up, sir. I know yeah. we could keep going, and we will definitely, if you're cool with it, within the next couple months get you back on because I have a feeling things are going to progress. You're smiling and making me uh, feel very hopeful. Go ahead. Well, uh, how much more time have we got this time? How much more time have uh, we got? Uh, about five more minutes, Mr. That's Jen. That's all I need. That's all I need. That's all I need. That's okay. Thank you. President Biden comes into this administration with massive challenges, somewhat on a par with FDR at 33. Huge challenge. And and if you if you're if you're a president and you need to solve major problems in a highly partisan environment, you need political capital. That's why they call it capital. You need all the political capital you can get to spend in getting things done that have to be done. If you don't have political capital, you have a problem. Right. He has X amount of political capital. But guess what? If these hearings happen, happen quickly, which means if, if the Democrats on the Hill get what I'm about to tell you, 
and the president as well, because the president can influence the hearing process. He just calls them up and says, look, I'd kind of like to have the hearings. He can't force it, though, under the Constitution. Then the president who makes the confirmation, which would emerge out of the hearings, maybe within just a few weeks of the beginning of those hearings, will achieve in that moment, I believe, the greatest political legacy in history. Yeah, our president... Yep, his name will definitely will not be erased from the history books. Absolutely not. And, 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 and not only that, it's a particular kind of legacy. In other words, what is he doing? He's telling a massive truth. He becomes the massive, the, the, the truth teller in an age of lies and misinformation when nobody believes anybody anymore and, con- mm-hmm. and, and, and government's coming to a halt. He's literally telling the most powerful truth in all of history. Now, if it's yeah. not going to be him, it's going to be somebody else. That's another reason why they need to do it quickly, because he's not the only president in the world right now. And so he he is he, if he becomes the disclosure president in late March, early April. All that the, the political capital he will get from that will be enormous. And he will then have that political capital to spend on getting the agenda that he wants. Now, some may agree with that agenda. Some may not. But the point is, we'll get an agenda as opposed to just spinning our wheels in deadlock. That is now that is not an easy concept to grasp. If I'm if I'm talking to some political operative on the hill and I say this, they're going to look at me like uh, E.T. disclosure, political agenda. How does that come together? What can I say? I think more of them are figuring it out. That is probably the number one reason why. We have to have those hearings sooner than later. We've got to get them out of the way. I know there's a lot of problems. So what? Right. This, right. And, and, and the other reason is they're nonpartisan. It's a nonpartisan subject. Both parties can engage them aggressively and intelligently and don't have to put on a show. Well, you this, mentioned other presidents. That kind of reminds me of the commie Chinese. Uh, they told of a location, but I don't believe a word they say. I hope it blows up. Just you know, my free speech here uh, talking. But wouldn't what would put it in a pinch if they actually land that Cydonia, Let's say on top of the face. <laughs> if they have those type of nuts, sir, you never know. Would that look, make a difference, or we're going in left field? Uh, in terms of life on Mars, it, it's not going to matter too much whether it's the Chinese or us or the Israelis or whatever. That's it would be a big deal. I mean, whoever goes first, though, the U.S. will probably undermine whatever they do by saying, yeah, we knew 30 years ago. We just couldn't say. But whatever. The point is, that doesn't matter. Whoever makes it, it's very significant. Leading into these hearings would be very helpful. Who makes the confirmation announcement? The president. That matters a great deal. So I don't really care who confirms life on Mars. I just expect it to be confirmed with 60 days or less. Right. So and then and then finally, again, as I mentioned, uh, we need to get it done because another president might do it. And that glory goes to that president. And And our president is going to look a little. In other words, we do not want our president having to go follow another head of state a few days afterwards and say, yeah, that's true. And we could have told you, but we didn't. And. So you got it from them. I mean, that that is not a look we want. And so it must be us. We're in agreement there. Uh, we're down to the wire here, sir. Um, I apologize that to cut this short, but it was very informational. I think in a way it's a good spot. Again, if you're willing to come back on in another couple of months, I think uh, we should definitely follow up 
with this, and the listeners would definitely appreciate it. But is there anything else going on right at the moment or what people should do or could do, as well as helping to donate to you and your efforts uh, for what is coming or to come that uh, you could – I still have a feeling you could shape this more than – but you understand the politics – but once something like this gets out with all the people wanting to behind, people could just start petitions too, correct? To help sure, things sure. along? I don't know about petitions. I'm inviting people to start talking disclosure, capital D, on, their, on, on Twitter and on Facebook. They're already, it's already happening. But the more chatter, I, I always put hashtag disclosure with a capital D on all my, almost all my tweets. So no. use hashtag disclosure. Talk about the issue. Go to my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org. There is a contribution page. Please uh, view my new podcast. I have one introductory video up. It's at disclosurewire.org. It has a YouTube channel as well. And, uh, and like it, please. I appreciate it if you'd, if, if, you'd, if you'd watch it. It's only 14 minutes. Uh, please follow Paradigm Research Group on Twitter and Facebook. And if at my website, paradigmresearchgroup.org, you, on the top of the page, you can see a subscription uh, link to the free updates that I'm going to be sending out with much more frequency. Mm-hmm. And let's, 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 I mean, I'm on the disclosure train. I, right. I'm not, I'm in the lead car, but I'm sitting in the back. Okay. I mean, there's other people in the forefront of the car there, you know, we know who they are, but I'm in the back uh, there, but this car has a lot of cars. This train has a lot of cars. Let's get on the disclosure train, folks, because it is going to leave the station pretty soon, and you don't want to be left on the platform. Now, when's your uh, your podcast? I believe uh, for your page, if you want to give a shout out to that, when that's starting, right? It you started. Started. It's up. It's up. The first, uh, the introductory video video to the Disclosure Wire podcast is up. You can link to it from the disclosurewire.org. That's the one word, disclosurewire.org. Yep. I also have a Disclosure Wire YouTube channel and a Disclosure Wire Facebook page. There's a lot of ways to get to it. It's on YouTube. How and uh, I think it's up to 1,400 views, but I appreciate your comments, your, your links, your, your likes, and please spread the word on it. Yes. it I, I'm going to get another one up, and then eventually they'll start going up once a week. But I'm dealing with a lot of stuff right now. But, I, uh, I hope, And I, eventually I will have guests. But it, remember, it's the only podcast on, on, on exopolitical stuff out of Washington, D.C. I set up the studio in the National Press Building. It's in the it's two blocks from the White House. It's, right. it's the National Press Club is right upstairs. So it's it's not an accident that it's here. And it's the only podcast like it. I'm not. But believe me, I'm new. I got colleagues that have been doing podcasts for years. So I'm just a I'm just a, a, a newbie and I'm learning. But the first one is not too bad. I okay. hope to make each one a little bit better. But yeah, disclosurewire.org. That's my Yeah, plus I'm sure there's people out there that'll help too, or that can help you with these other abilities to really expand on that. And uh, again, besides the, uh, helping them with donations, uh, or for maybe with some help, who knows? And you can contact them through that website too, I believe. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, look, if any, if anybody's out there, look, I, I've been ex- I've been supported for 24 years. I'm here for one reason only. I've had support and contributions sure. from people for 24 years, and and we haven't gotten disclosure, but a lot of those people have stayed with me, and I you know, I will always be in their debt. Uh, but I get it. A lot of people are saying, "Hey, you know, I've been helping with that," and and it happened. I totally understand. Polit- right. Political activism is not easy, and this is one of the toughest issues ever 
But if someone was thinking, man, I want to help out and I've got some serious Bitcoin. In fact, I'm going to put a I'm going to put a uh, cryptocurrency contribution thing up very soon. Yeah, and you and you want to help. This is the time because I believe we're, uh, we're uh, the finish line is in sight. I can see the banners and all the balloons and stuff. Uh, this would be a good time to to help help ensure that we're going to be uh, right there at the finish line, ready to to be part of the post disclosure world, which is when the action really starts. I mean, getting confirmation there's ETs here is great, right. but the real fun starts yeah. after that, okay? Yeah. And obviously, we want to be as financially involved and as strong as possible. So uh, now might be a good time to jump on the train and say, oh, yeah, I, I, I helped out right at the end there. I, I really helped him get across the finish line. Now, before you go, sir, the last question. Now, uh, bearing out that all that comes out true, do you think that would be the catalyst to actually push humanity in this space and also like help uh, like our next guest, uh, uh, Dr. Pekka Jan Hoonan and his goals of colonizing space, Elon Musk and his goals to colonize Mars and beyond. Do you think this opens the door to where we could actually be a part of that, like a new industrial age compared to like the early 1900s effort in our lifetime by all this? If you want to, if you want to see an extraordinary uh, work, that demonstrates one way we we go we colonize the solar system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you watch the the Amazon series Expanse. It's the finest I, sci-fi series ever made, mm-hmm. uh, and it's the, the, it's one more year. Five seasons are out. One more coming. The Expanse is unbelievable, but it it it's an example of of the human race going into the solar system, taking the same values and bad behavior with them. But nevertheless, it's extraordinary. We're already in space. Right, in but, it wasn't disclo- but it wasn't disclosure that prompted them to go into space. <laughs> no, you're right. You're, you're right. And, and that's fine. And, and, that, and that's interesting. But, so, but it, 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 you know, without disclosure, we're already in the solar system. We're already going there. We're going there regardless. Right. However, in terms of going interstellar, right, mm-hmm. disclosure is very important to that. And I'll leave this with your listeners. Because there's a reason the ETs have, have been here so aggressively the last 70 years. There's a reason disclosure has been uh, moving forward and is inevitable. Because it leads to open contact. And the reason that is... What I say... Oh, go ahead, sir. You just said that updated me. Yep. Because open contact follows disclosure. Why? Because one of the key reasons the ETs are here at all right now is because they are not going to allow us to go galactic unless we deal with the nuclear weapons issue. In other words, you, you, you're, you're, you're starting to figure out how to build interstellar ships. It's a workaround relativity. We've got it, and you're getting there. We're probably, before the end of the century, we'll figure it out. But you've still got these atomic bombs, and you're not putting those bombs on any interstellar ships and coming our way. And so we're going to have to have a little chat about that. So we're not going to be going interstellar until we get disclosure, because that's going to lead to open contact, and that will lead to a resolution of the nuclear weapons issue. That, I believe, is the ultimate agenda. And this is an aggressive speculation, but I, and I'd love to debate it with any 
any academic that would like to raise a, a opposition. But the point is, there is a difference between going solar system and going galaxy. Right. We will go solar system. Will we colonize like Elon Musk? I can make a good reason why no. But we will be in the solar system. The expanse, right. though, shows us a really aggressive engagement of the solar system. Uh, and it's just superb. Uh, and, and I will watch it, enjoy it. It's on Amazon Prime. And, oh, that's right. uh, and that's, you know, what I've got on that answer. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Bass. It was definitely an honor that you're here. You got a lot of info out. Obviously, you're smiling a lot more now. You're very excited. And like you said, your ball's out, and I respect that. And that's what we need is some balls in this state and this nation to help us win the space race as well as let alone make America great. Keep America great. And, uh, hey, secure it forever, which will be the infrastructure for the rest of the world. But I don't know. I'm just a crazy, patriotic, white American. Thank you very much, sir, for being on. We'll talk soon uh, if you're good with that. All righty. Thank you. Have a good night. All right, everyone. There you go, Mr. Stephen Bassett. Wow. Paradigm Research Group. Par- ParadigmResearchGroup.org. Click on the links on the FacesOfMars.com page. So, again, he, he's validating some things I had in a personal discussion with others. And it's 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 kind of, you can figure things out. You can see how he's meandering and moving through the things of which he knows about the politics and how things are and and are going to go and what catalyst could be well definitely life on mars we definitely see how that could be a catalyst that could help with a lot of issues politically but it's a timing we're all coming to uh we must be told but uh, aside from that let's see what uh dr dan hoonan has to say again i hope i'm saying his name right has to say about all these possibilities regards to our technology now we're the mission state and what he hopes that they will show and to get, make help uh the catalyst for his visions and his plans and his uh you know inventions be able to pan off for all the society out there in space so with that people again pack them and smoke them you're definitely going to need them when we come back on the martian revelation and i apologize dr jen dr jen hoonan for running a little late it couldn't it could not be helped uh, but maybe you see a segue in there somewhere. All right, so people, stay tuned. I'll be back. We are your friends. The Ruins of Mars Trilogy by Dylan James Quarles. Available in ebook, paperback, and audiobook. Set against the turbulent backdrop of the near future. The Ruins of Mars Trilogy tells the story of a long-dead Martian civilization and the team of NASA astronauts sent to explore its ghostly ruins. Far from Earth, the crew must travel on a mission more perilous than any could have anticipated. What they find buried beneath the red sands of Mars will test them to the breaking point and forever change the course of human history. Dean Marshall writes... An awesome, thrilling, intelligent, well-developed adventure. Five stars. Carolyn Evans says, A gripping read. After 40 years of reading almost every sci-fi piece that comes my way, I love this one for its originality. Five stars. John Mickelson says, Any sci-fi reader that enjoys Mars will not be disappointed. And even if Mars isn't your thing, it's still a great read five stars according to rw Beaulieu, 
the ruins of Mars should carry a warning label. It's that difficult to put down. Five stars. With over 50,000 readers and hundreds of reviews, The Ruins of Mars Trilogy is a modern sci-fi classic. And now, for the first time since its publication, you can join the adventure on Audible with a brand new... Just visit Amazon.com and search The Ruins of Mars, or look for it on Audible.com by searching The Ruins of Mars. That's The Ruins of Mars by Dylan James Quarles.
everyone this is gary legier your host the mars revealer known also as the mad martian and of course you're listening to the martian revelation that's still upon you all now so let's introduce our next guest dr peck name right but dr pekka jan hunan was born on may 31st of 1966 in hamanlina finland he's a finnish citizen and a resident of finland he speaks four languages. He speaks Finnish, which is his native language, and he speaks English, excellent, Swedish, he speaks good, and German, eh, modest. But Dr. Pekka Jan Hoonan is a space physicist, astrobiologist, and inventor. Dr. Jan Hoonan, again, Ph.D., is a research manager at Finnish Meteorological Institute Space and Earth Observation Center and a visiting professor at University of Tartu, Estonia. He is also Senior Technical Advisor at Aurora Propulsion Technologies, a startup company operating in the space sector. He studied theoretical physics at the University of Helsinki and made his Ph.D. on space plasma physics simulations in 1994. He has also published a theory on the origin of multicellular life, and he is best known for his electric solar wind sail invention. But the solar electric sail could enable traveling at speeds up to 100 kilometers a second, I believe, in space without any fuel consumption. With no major problems in any of the technical fields thus far, the planning of the first test mission has started, according to an article by Science Daily. In the same article, Science Daily wrote that the electric solar wind sail, developed by Dr. Pekka Jan Hoonan, might revolutionize traveling in space. And Dr. Jan Hoonan received funding for his electric solar wind sail research from Renard Backstrom Foundation in 2005. And Dr. Jan Hoonan has also proposed that steam balloons could be used to launch rockets and satellites from higher altitudes. According to Dr. Jan Hoonan, steam balloons are a cost-effective way of lifting a rocket into the stratosphere. The method is considered to be safe as well as reducing the carbon footprint of future rocket launches, Whereas in the past, the emissions alone had terrible implications for the climate. Huh, really? But Dr. Jan Hoonan has proposed also a lighting solution for an O'Neill cylinder. And listeners to this show can appreciate we just went over that in the last news segment 
regarding what an O'Neill cylinder is. In Dr. Jan Hoonan's concept, sunlight is concentrated by cylindrical paraboloid concentrators and reflected by semi-toroidal and conical reflectors and controlled by local blinders to simulate Earth-like diurnal and seasonal illumination cycles. And that's true. We do that on Earth, especially in greenhouses, you know, especially for the listeners here in Colorado well know, <laughs> growing that Martian mean green that, you know, when you're growing here in the summer and as it transitions to fall, you want your veggies and special buds to flower, many people use light deprivation systems, which is really blinders, you know, or sheets or anything to cover it all to keep darkness in to mimic a natural time for that the plants would uh, bud or thus flower. But no moving parts are needed other than numerous and easily accessible local blinders that regulate light input into the valleys. The settlement rotates as a rigid body and the mass distribution is that the rotation is passively stable. So that's really interesting. And uh, we'd like to thank you very much for joining us tonight, Dr. Jan Hoonan. Hopefully I'm saying that name right. And also, what are your thoughts about the recent landings on Mars, sir, and the inspiration and envisioning in children and the world population that it should be helping us to awake, that now is the time to embrace space, and how it should inspire many to look forward to the work that you do as more relevant now than it ever was rather than just a scientific or science theory for uh, 100 or 200 years from now. <laughs> Hello? Hello, do you hear me? Yes. Okay. Yes, so, hello from Finland. This is Pekka Janhunen. And it, it's uh, uh, half past nine o'clock here in the morning. Yes, yeah, sorry about that, sir. Uh, we ran a little long, but we will not take your time allotted to you away from you, sir. Thank you for the wait. Uh, and uh, it's always Jan Hunen. I, I, yes, I was, yes, Jan, Jan Hunen, yes. Yes. All right. The J is like a Y there. There's a lot yeah, of like yeah. that. Okay. So uh, what do you think of that, though, sir, about the landings and how it would inspire or should, uh, like, people like yourself with your work and what you're proposing, which is very bold, balls out. I respect that. It would. Uh, what do you think that these efforts now on Mars or anything else going on would help spur that away from science fiction, which is science fact now, but bring it forth in our lifetimes rather than 100 or 200 years away. Uh, does that help your work? Uh, y yes, in, in the sense that, that if people are more interested in, in, in other heavenly bodies and space in general, then that, that is, of course, what I'm doing. So... And my institute is also involved in this mission. So my institute has <clears throat> pressure and temperature and humidity sensors on board this Mars lander also. Ah, excellent. So uh, what are your hopes and, or predictions of this rover uh, and what it may or may not find? Because, again, you have a theory on the origin of multicellular life. So this question should be right up your alley in helping us uh, to understand. <laughs> Yes, so, so, so that, that theory, what you are referring to is, is about, uh, th that was about a paper about how multicellular animals, animal life perhaps emerged on Earth. Uh, and that had, had to do with oxygen concentration, but uh, uh, I don't think there is anything similar 
happened on Mars, so at least we have no no evidence for oh. that kind of things. Right. So what do you what are your hopes with the rover or anticipate or predict may or may not be found? Uh, I I must say that I, I'm not a, not really an, an expert to, say, to, say, to 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 know that. So so this is one one chain in the in the long long list of of Mars probes that have arrived and, and systematically of course they are they are looking for for evidence of of past or or present life and, and then also to to, to understand the, the geological history of, of of the planet Mars, so how what has happened there, and 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 we at least from my point of view, I think that a, an important effect, important process on Mars has always been the impact, I mean asteroid impacts impacts and 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 those. So 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 a lot of things we see on Mars are, are probably, I mean. A result of of asteroid impacts that have occurred on in hundreds of millions of years time scale. Hmm. Now, uh, well, that's still fascinating too because Earth has been struck as well, and there's many fascinating aspects to them for people that delve in that. Um, so obviously, your vision and the and your work is basically focused on moving out ahead, colonizing space. I believe. If I'm misspeaking, I'm getting to know you myself, sir. So please forgive me. Yes. Well, yes. Well, uh-huh. I, yes. Yes. Uh, at the moment, at least, uh-huh. my, my research work is kind of looking into into how to how to expand to space. Uh, but in the past, I have also done many other things in in science. So so the electric solar wind sail, which is of course also one one way to go to space, but but it cannot carry so high payloads what would be required for for manned exploration so so it's good for research probes and stuff like that but but not for manned exploration or or tugging any cargo crafts or anything like that what do you think a max payload would be or let's say if you were to carry as much as uh, Elon Musk's prospective big effing rockets 150 tons would one of these uh, electric uh, wind sails be able to pull that much, or how big would it have to be if size is an issue? Yes, this is a good question. Uh, I think that thank God uh, a few a few tons a few tons would be a maximum payload for the electric solar wind sail. So, so Mr. Musk has uh, has pulled up the game, so to, so to say. So he has put like two orders so 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 the masses that he's able to put put up are about 100 times larger than what we are able to move with the electric solar wind sail so and that's actually one one of the motivations for why I kind of little bit switched topic in the in the recent years so because when I realized that this electric solar wind sail wouldn't really be perhaps relevant for this large scale uh, colonization of the solar system uh, of course, you can also multiply. I mean, you can you could use this electric solar wind sail as a cargo transporter and make just many of them. So that would be possible. But I mean, if you there are limits to how how, how large fleets you can manage in space. So hmm. so from that point of view, maybe we need other what technologies. You, what do you mean by that? Like, well, we would need to have enough to supply to make a fleet in general. Well, <laughs> 
No, no, well, not, not, not that, not that so much. But, but just the traffic management, just the traffic control. I mean, of course, the solar system is very big, so, so it's not crowded up right. there in that sense. But, but if, but you always have a harbor. I mean, you have some point where you are taking those masses, and in front of that harbor, space harbor, there will be traffic congestion. Because these electric solar wind sails are rather slow to maneuver, so so it takes time before you can tilt them to change the, the thrust direction, for example. So, uh, so they are perfect for for maneuvering alone in the solar system in in month, in weeks and months time scale. But but they are not really very good for maneuvering n near this point where you have to bring the materials. Okay. Now, it's a stupid question, but fair enough. You try to help us understand and make stupid things uh, smart. <laughs> now, and reality, and it brings it to the bizarre. Now, the thing is, with science, science fiction, you're, you're, you're a science. You make science fiction reality. So, in that sense, I when I look at these big electro, uh, these electric uh, wind sails, and if it could carry, all right, a limitation of weight. I read an article before the one about the uh, the tubes here of of your work. I read that news article about you and uh, what was said and etc. And I definitely want us to get into that. I think you're very passionate about that, and I can respect that. And it falls out, and I respect that too because it needs to happen. But it needs to happen on a massive scale. Now. Again, back to the electric sale, would that be able to power, again, the news article before it had to do with greenhouses in space, would it be able to, platforms, uh, growing platforms, uh, growing greenhouses, would that electric that is used, could it power lights or uh, functional uh, systems to sustain the plants? Uh, no, not, not directly, uh, because the electric solar wind sail, it's not a not an energy source. Uh, it's a source of 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 thrust. So so it's a source of of force basically. So so it can't produce uh, energy. Actually, it it little bit consumes energy, but only only a little bit. So it doesn't matter. However, that said, I mean setting up greenhouses is not difficult in space because because sunlight simply the sunlight is everywhere. So so you have twenty four seven sunlight so so it's very easy to to use that for 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 powering your greenhouse and actually just producing the light for the plants to grow and that is definitely going to be needed uh before this actual effort which i want you to get us more involved with because it stated that within 15 years we could be above series space elevators, or at least how many people would be there for that process to set up the initial colonization? Because what I believe I read, sir, you had an idea like Elon Musk kind of has with the 1,000 big effing rockets and the one giant ring ship, as it was, but you expound on it with giant tubes, miles long. Uh, living facilities inside them, kind of like Halo for people out there that make the game Halo. Uh, but this is even better than that. Now, wow, how far, are we really that close to 
pull that off and do that? Bypassing Mars? Did I read correct? Uh, Yes, I mean... I mean, I have been asked by journalists, and I always reply that that within 15 years the first people could move in, in onto Ceres orbit. Uh, that, that first group would be about 10 people, perhaps, but then it would start to grow from there exponentially. Uh, that is, of course, assuming that there is a significant effort to, to that goal. So, so that that's kind of the. Uh, the technical limit. So it's not a prediction that it will actually happen, but it's it's a just a, okay. a, a, a statement that if we if we want to do it, then then yes, it is possible within 15 years, roughly, from from my perspective. Now, if Elon Musk big effing rockets was the pan out, um, uh, you know, I'm sure you can respect where I'm going here. He could carry a hundred people at a time. Now. If that was to help get the people out there, how many would you recommend for such an effort that would make within 15 years much more than a limited financial scale? How much effort would have to be put in that you, sir, would recommend if it was that this has to be done regardless, whether it's a cataclysm or something else you could pretend or that hopefully not in reality may be heading our way? for an effort to make that space colony your reality that you're creating for us, sir. What type of effort would it take? You're the scientist. You would know, right? Yes. Uh, so hopefully I'm making sense here. I'm ignorant of a lot of this, but I'm very fascinated, and I know your work is of the future and the fate we'll make. Yes. Uh, so so my approach regarding Ceres is, is like more more like rob- robotics first, so that one would first set things up pretty much. Pretty much the first settlement, first colony should be set up uh, rem- robotically. And then when, when it's basically ready, then the first team of people would move in and then they would <clears throat> accelerate the process because then once they are there, then they can start to teleoperate uh, the robots with with no time delay so so there is no communication time delay from the Ceres orbiting station to other systems around Ceres and that makes the robot the, the activities much more efficient because we have to remember that from if we are commanding those robots from earth then there is about 1 hour a back and forth time delay always or, or of that order of magnitude so so therefore uh, uh, so, so first set up the, the first small colony robotically, or not the entire colony, but, but let's say the radiation shield and the mirror systems to gather sunlight, and then move the first mission in with people, and then they settle there, they live there within the radiation shield so that they, they don't have to come back unless they want, and then... Uh, then they build other colonies with with the same robotic hardware, uh, but but with more efficiency because they are they don't have the communication delay. Uh, We're talking about a lot of robots, dude. I mean, especially if you make space elevators tethered to the surface that with a processing plant to help create uh, soil and regolith. I believe, if uh, hopefully I'm not misspeaking, sir. Please correct me. Uh, for inside these. Uh, urban areas as well as 
for where you want to plant trees, grass, and all yes. that, right? So yes. would robots be responsible for that? Or do you need a, t a lot of personnel to work with the robots to make all this happen? You know, uh, people go to series. People go into orbit. People go here and there where you guys pre-plan to set shit up. Within 10 years, everything is a thriving thing like we're seeing in those paintings. Yes, so... <clears throat> I really know. I don't know actually how mu how much processing it requires to right. to turn serious material into fertile soil where plants can grow. I I really don't know. And, and but I mean, chances are that it's not very complicated. I mean, but I mean, the way to find out is to, is to go to serious. I mean, not with people, but with robotic probes, and then take just right. measure. The, Measure the composition of the of the soil first of all. I mean, because we don't know that because we we just have remote observations from Sirius orbit up to now, so we don't know exactly the mineralogy. Is there, of, is there a mission that you know of that's in the works, or are you in on a mission uh, that's in on the works to do that? Because I think that's a pretty crucial part to get down for your plan. Right? Yes, but but what, but we also have to remember that in, in the initial stage. I mean, the first group of people would could simply, I mean, if if there are about ten people in the first mission, then they could simply for for several years they could eat eat normal food uh, brought from uh, imported from Earth. I mean, it's not such a it's about one ton one ton per person per year the food consumption. So so it's not not a showstopper to do it for let's say five or ten years even. And then also we have to remember that there is hydroponic, my hydroponic animals yes. growing. I mean, so you don't necessarily need soil to grow up at least some type of food. So, so you could do that as an interim solution, and then you, you would have time to to study the, this soil issue. That how much soil would be, how, how much processing would be needed to to make soil. But I'm pretty sure that. The soil processing is uh, much easier than producing steel from iron and steel from the from the series material, for example. Right. At least it's much more energy. At least it needs much less energy than to produce steel. And I'm saying steel because steel, I think, would be the main structural material because you need structural material in order to to create artificial gravity because artificial gravity means centrifugal force and that means that you must have pull strength uh, or i mean you, you must have some wires or, or cables which have pull strength that that withstand that centrifugal force what about glass sorry what what about glass i heard that glass in a in a vacuum supposedly uh it has, it could be, if not as strong, stronger than steel. Or is that, you know, I heard that somewhere from someone. Yes, I mean, there are many strong fiber materials. There, You could use carbon fiber. Uh, there is also the fiber, well, the commercial name in the USA is Spectra, I think. In, in Europe, it's called Dyneema. Uh, that's basically... <laughs> Very long molecular chain oil, <laughs> so so it's it's chemically the same stuff as gasoline, but <laughs> it's very long molecules, so that makes it uh, like very strong plastic. So and actually the high end high high end fishing lines, the woven 
fishing lines are made of that stuff. So so it's pretty, it has very very high uh, tensile strength re- relative to mass. But but now now the question is that what what is the simplest material to manufacture on CRS? So so we right. don't need the full the maximum performance. We just need enough performance. Uh, so to the moderate centrifugal force. So 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 we we would need these top end materials only if we would like to make those cylinders very large, let's say five kilometer radius or something like that. Then we are talking about these high end materials. But if the radius is one kilometer or less, then ordinary steel is is perfectly fine. It's more a question of what is the cheapest thing to do? What is the simplest thing to produce in a remote place like Ceres? And overall, we have to we have to understand that, you know, I, I mean, space activities they have a reputation of being high high tech and very expensive materials, exotic materials, and so on. But the reason for that is just the launch, the difficulty of launching from Earth. So once we are in space. And once we can make materials from the local resources in space, then then these uh, requirements, mechanical requirements on those materials become much less because there is no no there are no launch rocket launch vibrations anymore, for example. So right. so the tough part is is how to get from Earth, and that's expensive and and tough in many respects. But once you are there, then it's much much easier. At least in Sierras, because the gravity in Sierras is very low. So, what's the next mission? Do you know of that's going to go to Ceres uh, to pull off the surface tests? Uh, because things have to start moving, you know, for yourself too. We're not getting any younger here, and uh, I want to see this. I can imagine what you must be, uh, you know, how you grew up thinking. Probably, you know, who knows. You know, things that you don't see on sci-fi, but you're actually building it. Your life is actually building the pathways to our future, our destiny, our fate. So what missions are upcoming that you know of? Because how long do you – maybe a better, better, better question, sir. Forgive my ignorance again. I'm not as highly educated, but I do have a fascination and an inquiring mind. Now, how soon do you think the missions would start to be able to, to send at least the first 100 people up there to start doing what you are proposing? How far are we from actually doing it? Yes, I mean, I, I said I, I say 15 years, but I mean, but but not not quite 100 people because uh, I mean, even though you can put 100 people in, in Starship, I mean the the, the SpaceX rocket. I think that because the journey journey to to Ceres is so long, you need a lot of supplies along the way. So, so I think to be conservative, I would say ten people. But I mean, it could be thirty. But nevertheless, less than hundred. But but this is a, is a is a technical detail. So 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 it's not so important if the if the first team is is ten or or hundred or, or or something else. The important thing that the first team can function and, and stays alive there. And, right, and, and, has the right cargo there, has the right materials, things to set up uh, in orbit, and then as they go down, and then because uh, would they make the tethers from the material uh, from the surface, or would they have to bring that, or is it a lot of it 3D printing? I mean, this yes. opens up, well, I'm just fascinated, sir, I'm sorry. Yeah, yes, this is true. So, well, concerning the space elevator cable, on Ceres. So 
of course, eventually you, you would like to make also that from, from the local materials on series, but there is no urgency in doing that because you oh. can quite well bring the, the, the whole cable from Earth in the first missions because uh, because the mass multiplication time of this tether is very short. I mean, that means that the tether can lift its own weight in, in less than one day, basically, from the surface. So, so, so if you put one ton tether... <laughs> So, so if you put a one-ton tether, tether cable, for example, the first thin one, then uh, then in in one year it would have it has lifted maybe thousand tons already. So, so it's very very good good trade. I mean, it's very efficient even without making it from the local resources. And of course, we, we must a lot of jobs. Yes, I mean, of course, we we have to. Uh, we have to understand that for the foreseeable future, something must be brought from Earth anyway. So, especially, right. for example, microprocessors. I mean, they, they require large factories, and, and it's not, <laughs> not very feasible to think that such large industry would be set up in a remote place. Of course, perhaps eventually, yes, but, but it will take a very long time before you can produce microchips <laughs> uh, on CRS. But, but on the other hand, these microchips are so lightweight that uh, as long as you're bringing people from Earth, then you, you, they can also, you can also now, pack these electronics there. So Now that brings up, and I think, I think what you may be referring to uh, would be aerogel uh, involved in that, right? And that material could be used to help build a lot of things as well as help prevent, I hear, radiation, and definitely uh, protection and use in computers and circuits. Is that kind of like what you're hinting at? Well, for, for the radiation, my, my approach is very simple. We, we just need thick walls, a lot of mass, so th three, three and a half meters of, of serous soil surrounding the habitat, and that's it. Because, ah, because, we, we, we must, uh, because the space elevator is, is quite efficient, so, I mean, in terms of energy, so it can lift up a lot of mass, uh, so, so the mass is not really that expensive in CRS orbit. So, right. so the, the more expensive thing is to make structural material out of the CRS soil. I mean, in a, again, in a, speaking energetically. Uh, so, so, so making the steel. I, I mean, so, so the majority of the mass of this settlement would be so, just soil, uh, and one part of this soil would be just radiation shield, and that can be essentially any material. Uh, the other part would be the soil where you are growing things. But as I said, you don't need that in the very first missions because you can do hydroponic. Uh, right, you got to build the foundations. Because I would think, sir, I mean, and I'm not as smart as you and none, but I would think, boom, get there, hit the tether fast, build the space, the space platform, connect into the tether, start having ships coming to, start building up, start sending down, start a big process. You got to build a processing plant. Is it yes. just going to Robots building it. Well, I we would imagine. We're I in would, a space race. Well, I would imagine that in the first phase, mm -hmm. um, you would just bring all the structural material from Earth still. So that would be the first phase. But you would make the radiation shield and the, let's call it soil, 
radiation shield and soil, you, you would you would just take that from, from CRS. And also you would take from CRS the nitrogen, which is in the atmosphere and, and the water that you need. So water, nitrogen, and just soil. Uh, and for, for those, you just need to lift up the mass. I, I mean, just you just have to collect the mass, first of all, from the surface of CRS by using surface miners. You have to grind it to, to some to suitable pieces, and then you, you pack it up and lift it up with the elevator. And then once in orbit, then you heat it up a little bit so that some gases come out, including water vapor and perhaps ammonia. Then you process the ammonia, I mean, catalytically to, to, to separate it to hydrogen and, and nitrogen. Uh, you perhaps store both, but at least you need the nitrogen for the atmosphere. And not only that, nitrogen for growing plants. You mentioned hydroponics. There's a nitrogen part. Y yes, I mean, of course, nitrogen you also need for new. I mean, nitrogen is also a nutrient. But but I, I was talking about the atmospheric yeah. nitrogen that we have because yeah. because uh, air is is almost air is seventy eight percent nitrogen. So and you need. A rather large amount of air in in this type of settlement. So, mm. so even even though air is lightweight, it it still weighs something. And and How would when that you... be generated? I mean, I'm sorry, sir. I I do that time to time. Please forgive me. And hopefully you'll be on again in the future. But despite my faults, but how would you create that atmosphere? Would it be totally enclosed in that sense? Um, yes, yes, okay. yes. I mean, it must be airtight. So. Again, a stupid uh, question. <laughs> airtight. So, so, and and this airtightness is is of course that it, that is a non-trivial thing. So, so it's not easy to make things exactly airtight. But again, you don't. Would the need to be exactly... the, I'm sorry. With the experiments on the rover, the Moxie, that try to create oxygen out of out of the and the other, you know, and hydrogen, whatnot. Uh, on the rover, uh, uh, is that a process that you that you would utilize, or do you have another option to create that atmosphere as fast as possible? How long would that yeah. take? Yes, uh, well, uh, well, I think on Sirius it's it can be easier because we know that Sirius has a lot of water, so th there is a lot of water ice in the surface. So. So, so, and then you just heat it up a little bit so that you get out water vapor among with other gases, but then especially water vapor, and then you separate this water vapor from the gas stream that you get out. And then once you have water condensed, then you can electrolyze it into hydrogen and oxygen, and that's the way where you get oxygen for, for, for the atmosphere. And the nitrogen for the atmosphere, as I said, you, you probably probably there is ammonia among the gases that come out from the uh, from the soil when you heat it up. And if so, then you just separate that ammonia and also, I mean, I mean, decompose it to, to hydrogen and, and nitrogen. And that's way you do, does, does every element, as it was, hopefully that's the right term, could be used or in that splitting process, so everything gets used for purposes to benefit a colony? Yes, that's at least approximately, and that, that is certainly a goal as far as I'm concerned. So the idea, the idea is that you leave absolutely no waste, so, so, so you or almost no waste. So you, 
waste. So, so you don't leave heaps of waste on the surface of shears, but you actually use everything that you you just grab stuff from the from the soil and, and then grind it and then lift it up and then use it in some way or another all of it. And that and this is possible because just because most of the mass that you need is radiation shield and radiation shield can be almost any uh, can be essentially any any material. So uh, essentially the, the radiation shields are our trash bins basically. So, so and that's why we don't leave actual trash because the trash is is useful in the in as radiation shield in, in the uh, in, in the around the uh, around the colonies. This would be so eco perfect. Any screw-ups would be detrimental to each cylinder, each planet as it was, each cylinder, if you have a lot of people living in it, each one. Uh, and that, that you know, isn't that amazing, sir? Isn't that amazing? Yes. It's amazing, yes. Uh, but we, on Earth, we are so used to, to do mining in a certain way that we... We are very selective when we do mining on Earth. So we know that we want iron and then we find an iron ore and then we go there and mine it and then we throw away everything else. But but when you think about this problem in in space or at least in serious orbit, this is it's very different problem. And the, re and the reason is that really that most of the material, most of the mass that you actually need is radiation shield. And then any material can be useful as a radiation shield. Of course, they have small differences in performance. So, so water is more effective radiation shield than, than rock, for example. But, but, but these are just small. So small there, details. there could be differences in weight uh, as long as the shields require what would be required. It, uh, it could be either iron or some other lightweight material, uh, or is that what yes. I mean, lightweight materials are better shields than 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 heavy materials in general. So, would, would, that, that, help, would that help the health, the the overall health and stability of each cylinder's functionality, or does that, or is that well, not I, space? I would say that it's just a technical detail. So, so the difference between <laughs> wood and and bad materials in radiation shielding are not that huge. So. So, so you might have, if you use water, maybe then six or seven tons per per square meter is enough. But if you use rock, silicate rock, then you may may need ten or eleven tons per per square meter. So, but but since since the material is all there and it's un, unlimited amount of it on the surface surface, then it doesn't really okay. matter. So, yeah. and we have to we have to also remember that radiation shielding is is. Um, it's rather exponential thing. I mean that that if the shield has sufficient thickness, then it actually kills off the radiation almost completely. Uh, while if you make it a little bit thinner, then you get a lot more radiation coming through. So, so, so it, it's not a linear thing. So, so it's not so that if you double the radiation shield, then you get two times less radiation inside. So but does that mean there could be like space erosion over over time to where eventually you would have to maintain sections of this thing to replace the shielding? Or is that a dumb question again? Uh, no, it's not a, not, a, not a dumb question. And of course, there is some space erosion 
produced by micro meteoroids hitting the surface all the time but but this is a relatively slow process so so in 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 10 or 100 years not much happens so but eventually <clears throat> eventually yes you have to do some maintenance and 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 replace things and you must of course in order to live in that kind of space city sustainably of course you must be prepared all the time to you must have the capability to to dismantle every any any of those cylinders Oh, I thought you were going to say you must be ready to evacuate. <laughs> yes, evacuate. Yeah, yes, I mean, eva- I mean, yes, evacuate. I mean, yes, because I mean, this is a the structure that, I, that I'm envisioning is a me- what I call a mega satellite. So, so yeah. it's a rigid frame which is hosting a large number a number of these cylinders, all of which are rotating. So. So yes, you can. If there is a problem on any of those cylinders, then people can just move out, and then you can evacuate it. You you can let out the air and everything, and then you stop the rotation, and then you you have time to to robotically do everything what is needed. So you can you can turn it into construction site again without without losing any materials, and you can. And you must must be able to you must have this the capability of doing this all the time. So, so, so you must. Uh, I mean, it, you, you can't say that you just build this castle <laughs> once and right. for all, and then you are live, live there happily ever after. No, no. I mean, you must have the capability to uh, to build new towers, uh, new cylinders in this this castle all the time. And of course, this comes naturally yes, in the growth phase because you are building new new cylinders all the time to this existing city. Yeah, because you're going to have people coming, being born there even, uh, yes, you know, course. living there, and therefore you got to expand. And this is much better than starting to fight for, uh, you know, turf and all that. When it's being built, you could have a thousand giant rings of these things, of what one you described would hold 1,000 of these, right, if I'm not mistaken. Well, and, what, could, would you have a nuclear power source eventually to help along maybe in the center of the thing where it's not a threat to anybody? Or is that another dumb question? Uh, no, it's not a dumb question, but uh, but I would think, I mean, you can... Mm. It's fascinating. I'm sorry. So I don't well, mean yes, to... yes, but I, I mean, so, so, so you could use nuclear power. I mean, there is no no obstacle for doing that, but I don't know if if there is a need because ah. because the sun sun shines all the time. I mean the difference. I mean even on Earth. I mean solar power would produce all the electricity that we ever want to use, except for one thing that it doesn't work when when the sun doesn't shine. So but in, space, <laughs> in space, the sun shines actually all the time because the. So, so it's 24/7 constant sunlight. So then it's very easy to to get energy and to get electricity all the time, and all it's even more easy than on Earth because uh, this mega satellite structure is in zero gravity. Right, uh, and you get and that means that that means that these uh, these mirrors, mi- right. mirrors, parabolic or whatever mirrors that you use to to collect sunlight and to concentrate it. They can be very lightweight because they don't have to support their own weight, and they don't have to support withstand uh, weather forces uh, as on Earth. I mean, on Earth it's very difficult to build up these kind of reflectors because you have wind 
clothing right. and weather and snow and ice and whatever. And, but in space, you have none of that. So this could be very thin, paper thin uh, structure so and very nice. You could have that covering the shielding then. Uh, yes, but I mean, you, you have to think about geometrically how it goes. But I mean, I mean that's again a technical detail. So in, in my concept uh, of the mega satellite, there, there are two uh, planar mirrors which uh, collect the sunlight, which first, first of all, direct the sunlight against the main plane of this megasatellite. And then in the plane, there are, there, is, there are parabolic mirrors that concentrate it. Right. And then before using it for the greenhouse, for the, for, for the habitats, for, for the greenhouses, you have diffuse reflectors which are moving so that you, we get those day-night cycles. Uh, right. but, but all that is, is basically a technical detail. But, but I mean, the, 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 the reason why this certain geometry I se was selected is that I wanted to have a structure. I wanted to have a shape of this megasatellite, which is uh, growable, which is self-similarly growable. That means that you can build, you can extend the structure at the edges, both the, the main plane and the mirrors. If you extend them, you can... Uh, grow it as large as you want. So, so the, the idea is really that to have only one, only one such structure in orbit of Ceres, but this one can be huge. So it can, could eventually host hundreds of billions of people. <clears throat> so, so there is no, almost no limit to, to the grow, amount of population this can host. Sorry? And, and grow hundreds of giant redwood trees, I imagine. Imagine yes, if, if you want that, yes, if you want that, it's, it's certainly possible, yes, yes. Make the accommodation set for whatever you want, uh, right, depending on gravitational statistics or whatever else would that imply if it does on humans, because you, you, like you said, and how they, this thing will be spinning around, that will be creating uh, gravity to make it like Earth-like gravity for people living inside this, babies to be born, and... Yes. And thrive without did you ever see that movie wally no no unfortunately uh, sir you should i think you get a kick out of it why do okay. i say that because they leave earth earth turns into a garbage heap i'm keeping it short they go to uh space aboard ships they have these little levitation cars they all wind up living in and because of the gravitational aspects and differences on their ships that they left Earth from, they lived away from it for a while, having kids a few hundred years or so, and their bones, they all got fat, they didn't want to walk no more, they, you know, but everything's automated, you know, technical <laughs> things being worked out, and then they come back to Earth, and boy, they had to, you, you get the impression at the end, they had to relearn everything and readapt. So mm -hmm. but that's why I asked that, sir, because that taught me that's a relevant question for these tubes. How yes, yes. To control the gravity? Yes, the gravity. Yes, indeed. This is a very crucial point, and, and this is the main motivation <clears throat> of using these artificial spinning systems and not, not the surface of Mars. Because okay. with, this, uh, with this artificial gravity, you can, you can have 1G, you can have the same gravity as on Earth. Uh, so that is the idea. So, so we would actually have exactly the same gravity. Or, I mean, we can have any gravity that we choose, but let's choose the same that, that what we have on Earth, because right. that's what but we are, that's what we are adapted to. 
Right. That's for the best yeah, health course, of everyone. For, I'm for sorry, recreation. Sir. For recreation purposes, of course, you have the reduced gravity areas available in the cylinder. So if you want to have fun and float in space, you can do it at any time. But but as, as long as you don't do it continuously, because that would be bad for your health, basically. Your right. muscles would athro atrophy. I mean, so, so that's the only reason why, why we want this uh, 1C gravity. How long do you think it would take to build one of these uh, cylinders with people uh, ready to move in uh, and up and running atmosphere? And how many people would be needed for that time frame? Uh, I'm not well. I, I'm not able to answer accurately because it depends on, on many details. This depends on uh, well. Let me put it in this way. So I think there are many many good ways to do it so 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 you can do it with with 100 uh, with 10 people first for example but you could also use some other number it doesn't really matter as long as you do the planning consistently so so this is just one of the technical details which are not clear at the moment but 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 whichever strategy we choose they will all lead to success that's that i'm i'm certain about uh, it's just a question that what is the cheapest way to do it? What is the most economical? What is the safest and and and, uh, and so on way to do it? So, so but but the, I mean, yes, in my opinion. So I would Im Im imagine that the first team of people would be about 10 and that they would enter there after after things have already been set up robotically to some extent and perhaps even uh, perhaps even test those greenhouses before sending the first people there. But, but this also boils down to how much experimentation we do on Earth orbit first. I mean, because that would be much cheaper to do anyway. So, so, so we, we might want to have space hotels and, and stuff like that, space colonies on low, low Earth orbit, because, because, because accessing them is, I mean, before going to Ceres, I mean, just to, to learn right. how this, this, this uh, ecosystems and how, how this gardening and, and everything works. So in, essence, in essence, you would have to build a mini, uh, a miniature one here in our Earth orbit. How soon can that start to be put to work? Because that would push uh, the initiative to make what you want to propose way yeah. of series more applicable, I think, in people's minds. I could be wrong. Yeah. Yes. I, no, no, you are not wrong. You are absolutely, absolutely right. Uh, well, concerning the time scale, I think that as soon as this... Uh, as Elon Musk get, he gets the Starship up and running, up and flying, then, then, then we are talking after that. Because once you have this 100 tons per, per flight in a reusable mode, then that will change the game completely. I mean, that will the prices come down by a factor of 100, perhaps. So, so that, that will actually be a new, that will be space 2.0, basically. So, so the completely new era in, in space, which will start from that. So and, and we we haven't seen nothing yet in space compared to what we will see in the next ten years. I, I mean, if 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 he succeeds in in what he's doing, or if if one of his competitors succeeds, it doesn't matter, have, of course. Have you have you or any of your team or anyone been in contact with him or his team on potential plans and or to see what? May, hey, maybe he'll help the effort that you're doing. It'll co jointly benefit type of thing. Have you have you spoken with him, sir? Well, I mean, I haven't, but I mean, I have spoken with many other people 
regarding mm-hmm. this and other also policy matters and, and funding matters and, and so but of course I, I I don't want to disclose those discussions so oh, absolutely. because they are under they are they are confidential but but in general terms I, I am well connected with the space community but no I as far I haven't been the, I haven't had the honor to to speak to to, to Mr. Musk directly no right. well hopefully that could happen and you know uh, that would be great you know Because, you know, I love the vision of Elon Musk. I'm glad he's here. He's for America. And I just wish more of we, the people here in America, uh, respected uh, his nuts, sir, in going balls out with his money for America. And I, I don't see him getting the support that he deserves. But that's just my opinion. He's a visionary, like I feel you're a visionary, who thinks big has the nuts to do so, and needs all our support because we're in a damn space race and we're going to make our fate. That's how I feel. I'm crazy, sir. Please forgive me. Hopefully you'll be on again in the future, will you? Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> you know? Yes, I can. Yes, I'm glad to, in- uh, to, to join this show again if you, if you prefer. Yes. Oh, definitely, because your work's progressing. I know you're going to want to uh, report out to the listeners, uh, find the time, what's going on, and that helps, you know, build your support, you know, for yourself as well. Because we the people, man, uh, and I mean we the people of the earth, we're looking at guys like you to help to help make our dreams. You understand? Yes, and there yes, is that time yes, in the yes. age where people like you have the ability, but we just have to get behind to ensure that people like you with your abilities benefits us all in a time frame we all need. Yes, exactly. You, you put it uh, you put it very succinctly, yes. <laughs> I go I fully agree. Nothing right. nothing uh, nothing to add to that. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm glad I'm on the right track. It shows, again, you're definitely a welcome guest. Um, what are we leaving out, sir? Uh, because I think yes. we're coming. How long, How much uh, time has he been with us? I know you gave us an hour. I wanted to give you an hour. Uh, yeah, this is an hour, yes. So. Yeah. So uh-huh. I, I guess we could stop now and then, then come back to business some, at some later point. All right, that would be great. We learned a lot and to focus on on this uh, show. And uh, int- nice meeting you, sir. And uh, my audience uh, feels the same way. We definitely would love to have you back. We love your accent, bro. I could follow it perfectly. And you speak four languages. Wow. <laughs> yes, we in Europe, we have to cope with many languages, as you know. <laughs> You must have had an interesting childhood, man. <laughs> you know, and and that's an honor, and it's great to be able to speak with you. Because again, you you help and make our fate, whether you know it or not. And it's beyond politics. It's beyond money. There's going to come a time when it comes down to humanity itself and the question of what we're going to do with the Earth, of all possible scenarios, without hopefully a cataclysmic situation to kick us in our ass to get motivated. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, again, thank you very much. Okay, thank much. you. Have anything coming up you would like the listeners to know about or, or anything that you would uh, they can follow you? Any conferences or anything that we should be aware of? <laughs> uh, not at the moment. I mean, this conference situation is, of course, rather unpredictable because it all depends on the COVID vaccination. Right. Things. But so, so. So at this point, I'm not able to say, but but things are evolving fast. So in one month, a lot of lots has happened already, and I'm sure that 
uh, many interesting developments occur in the in the next few months. Yes. Well, maybe that's when uh, we should have you on again to t- chime in, if you don't yes. mind. Okay. Uh, we'll definitely keep in touch. The listeners will follow you. They'll, hook, uh, they'll hit your links there. And, uh, again, thank you very much for being on. So nice meeting you. And let's make our fate, sir. Yes. Thank you very much, sir. Sure. Have- Bye. So there you go, Mr. Jan Hoonan. Uh, Jan Hoonan, you see? I got to get... <laughs> Jan Hoonan, yes. Yes. So you have a good night, sir. Thank you. So there you go, listeners. What do you think of that, Mr. Jan Hoonan? He's quite a visionary. You know, uh, he had that circle thing in mind. That I, what attributed me is having a thousand of those things as big as they are, all in a, you know, a turning circle as it was, like Elon Musk's big effing rocket plan. It would look like a giant spaceship, you know, with all these... Uh, you know, suborbital crafts that connect to it that each make up the structure and each help partake and uh, make viable the entire structure. If Maybe if it needed ever move somewhere away from a planetary source that was used to help create it, as long as they can move around and have means to get into and fro, you know, again, the asteroid belt, that, that's where Ceres is. I mean, you don't have to be stationed there permanently. Shit, I should ask them that. You know, but either way, there's always a future show. And uh, I was definitely fascinated with uh, Mr. Stephen Bassett was bringing us uh, with also. Looking at these various perspectives of the Martian revelation, you must come to conclude that you must pack them and smoke them because you're definitely going to need them. Now, I guess with that being said, until next week, uh, let me get up. All I'm going to say is my, my, hey, hey. (laughs) What a wonderful day.